Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 330. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Another big show for you today. Yes, certainly have. We have a Mother and Day Sunday special. Yes, it's Mother's Day on March the 30th over here in the UK. And two stories to fit nicely in that as well. I'll tell you what else is coming on today's show. First up, one of the fiction is Pause Time by Mary Soon Lee. Then we have Fact Article. It is end of the month, Mr. J.J. Campanella with his Science News. Then we've got Leah Cypress with Nanny's Day. Then if it's okay with everyone here, what I'm going to do is play an interview that I carried out in 2010 with Lucius Shepard. And I just heard a couple of days ago, Lucius passed away. And it just, I didn't realise, I think I must have missed it by a couple of days or something. And I didn't, you know, I knew he was ill. I knew he was going through a bit of a bad time, but he passed away. And uh, it just, you know what I mean? The kind of one of the kind of the cool writers out there. Do you know what I mean? His work was just fantastic. Like I say, I did a recording in him in 2010. And I'll give you a little back history there now, and I'll talk a little bit more about him. But it was when I was carrying out these interviews where I just had, you know, I'd ask people, give us a question on science fiction. And I had about 15 questions to ask. And I could only kind of do these 15 questions. And we did that interview and I could tell he was struggling. Do you know what I mean? He's like these kind of pre, you know, wrote down questions just didn't suit Lucius at all. So we kind of got through that, you know, and I kind of saved it and I played it on the show. But then I would just chat after that. And this was, you know, like I say, I've been doing podcasting since I think 2010 and interviewing people and that. But this was the very first one, the very first interview where I just thought, forgot I was interviewing. And we just talked. And that was the, you know what I mean? It was one of my, my finest achievements, I think, in just talking. Do you know what I mean? Eventually, you kind of 
we just kind of slip into this role and, and Lucius asking, asking me questions, you know, and, and stuff like that. And it just become, and I think that was the key, that why it kind of stood and, you know, always remember, you know, talking to Lucius, it just stood out, you know, we just kind of talked. And, you know, he was happy to just let us be a friend, you know what I mean? And, and we've had some great, you know, communications and chats in, you know, since then as well. And, you know what I mean? I've thought, I just hope he's up there telling these stories, do you know, because, like I say, a, a great writer, do you know what I mean? Sadly missed, and like I say, just right at the end, I'm going to play this interview that we had just talking. So if you've heard it, you know, apologies for that, but I just think it, it warrants it, you know what I mean? A passing of a great science fiction writer. Well, not just actually science fiction, everything, do you know what I mean? Everything. So do listen out for that if you haven't heard it. So we'll get into the first bit of fiction. It is Pause Time by Mary Soon Lee. I'll give you a little background on Mary. In 1992, Mary started writing and submitting short stories, mainly in the science fiction and fantasy genres. She has had over 70 stories published, including appearances in the year's best SF4 and 5, edited by David Hartwell. Her story, Cause and Consequence, in Zone 136, October 1998, won first place in the Best of Soft SF competition. She has two collections in print, a science fiction collection, Ebb Tides and Other Tales, and a fantasy collection, Winter Shadows and Other Tales. A.B. Wood did beautiful covers for both illustrations. In 2000, Mary began writing poetry as well as short stories. Her poetry credits include American Scholar, Main Street Rag, and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And this story is narrated by the one, the only, Amy H. Sturgis. Ames, what a fantastic story. Thank you so much for narrating this. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present Pause Time by Mary Soon Lee. 20 minutes into the transatlantic flight, Connor started wailing. Pauline cradled him in her arms. Then she rocked him. She offered him her breast. She sang to him. Connor continued to cry. The man sitting on her right gave her a thin smile. Did you forget the baby's pauser code? No, Pauline mumbled, wishing she could sink through the floor into the cargo hold. I've never used the pauser. Connor quieted just long enough for her words to carry to the neighboring rose. Indignant heads swiveled a glare at her. Unbelievable, said a woman with a Bronx accent pretending to talk to her husband, but making sure Pauline heard. Traveling with an unpaused infant should be illegal. Her cheeks burning, Pauline stood up with Connor. She contorted her way along the aisle to the restroom. Inside, she checked Connor's forehead. He didn't feel warm, but maybe the pressure change had affected his ears, even though she had inserted air-ease discs before takeoff. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay she told Connor, trying to sway him from side to side without touching the sink or the toilet. He was eight weeks old, and she'd managed not to pause him once, not even when she was exhausted after the delivery. As soon as she had learned she was pregnant, she had resolved never to use the pauser, except in a medical emergency. She knew that most parents used pause time without a second thought, but she couldn't persuade herself to join them. Not after how she had grown up. But Connor looked so devastated, she couldn't bear it. She cuddled him a minute longer, 
then pulled down his blanket and tapped the four-digit code into the pauser belt round his waist. He vanished, replaced by a baby-shaped darkness, neither cold nor warm, that she couldn't press her finger into. His little outfit clung to the edge of the darkness. Pauline stepped out of the restroom, telling herself she had made the right decision. A stewardess whisked the paused bundle from her before she could say anything and stowed it in the rack with the other infants. Pauline found Connor's third month the hardest yet. She had paid for a nurse to stay with her the first week, and then she had hired a home help to come three hours a day. Unfortunately, she couldn't afford long-term help, so now she and Connor were entirely on their own. Whenever Connor napped, she struggled with chores and a huge backlog of work. Pauline worked mainly from her two-room flat, designing reactive pictures for people with digital walls. During her pregnancy, she had imagined Connor playing happily in the corner while she sat at the computer. Connor had other ideas. He liked to be held. Unless he was sound asleep, he roused when she laid him in his crib. On good days, he snoozed in her lap as she programmed. On bad days, he craved motion. She switched to data shades and a voice interface so that she could walk around as she worked, carrying Connor in a sling. But it took twice as long to design even simple animates, and after she tripped over a trash can, too absorbed by the digital overlay to notice where she was actually walking, she abandoned that idea. Laundry piled up everywhere. Connor spat up on his clothes, on her clothes, on the sheets, on the sofa. His self-cleaning nappies leaked. A dozen times a day, Pauline was tempted to use the pauser for the second time. But the nights, which she had dreaded, proved easier. When Connor woke up in his crib, she lifted him into the bed beside her. His mouth would open and close in a blind search for her nipple before he latched on, his body a warm snuggle against hers. It took her brother's visit to break Pauline's resolve. Harold phoned up one afternoon to say he was in London for a business meeting and planned to drop by for breakfast at nine the next morning. Pauline panicked. She called every cleaning service in the city, but none could come at such short notice. She carried Connor around the flat while she bagged the dirty laundry. She walked him to the baker's, where she paid a ridiculous sum to have fresh croissants delivered by seven the next day. But when she started vacuuming the floor, Connor howled. And she reached for the pauser belt and tapped in the code. Furious with herself, she tidied up in a frenzy while Connor's silent silhouette lay motionless on the sofa. She barely saw her brother anymore. All her life, she'd been trying to catch up with Harold, to be even half as witty, half as successful, half as confident as he. But Harold lived in a mansion in an exclusive suburb of Paris, with three children, a devoted wife, and a team of top-of-the-line robot servitors. However clean her rented flat, she'd hardly managed to impress him. She told herself Connor wasn't suffering, wasn't feeling anything at all. She remembered being paused herself, the brief dislocation as the world flicked ahead, seeing her father wearing a different suit or finding the lights on and the curtains drawn instead of morning sunlight. Nothing more than that. 
pause time itself hadn't hurt at all. Her body skipping past the intervening minutes without a single breath, heartbeat, thought, and surely Connor was too young to understand or mind that he had been paused. She had no reason to feel guilty, no reason at all. Many parents used pausers regularly. Some of them only unpausing their children at the weekends. Maybe people like that should join a pauser help circle or seek professional counseling, but she had only used the pauser twice. It was ridiculous to fret about it. Harold phoned at eight thirty in the morning. I'm so sorry, Polly. Something came up. I promise I'll see you and a hesitation while he must have checked his wrist computer. Connor, next time I'm passing through, mustache. He hung up before she could say anything. Pauline delayed as long as she could before resuming client visits, but the day Connor turned five months old, she got an email from a colleague at Cambridge University. Trinity Hall wanted to commission a coordinated suite of seventy reactive murals. Would she be willing to consider the assignment? She danced around the flat, a puzzled Connor in her arms. Most of her clients were rich individuals, able to afford one or two personalized murals, but to get a chance to design a suite of seventy, she couldn't wait. She phoned Trinity Hall and arranged to visit the day after next. The sprinter train from London to Cambridge ran underground in one perfectly straight tunnel, taking just under twenty minutes. Connor's stroller followed Pauline closely as she walked up out of the station and west through Market Square, a shopping center crowded with pedestrians and speeding cyclists. Puffs of scent billowed at her as she hurried past the shops: roses from a florist, citron from a jeweler, leather from a shoemaker. Advertising jingles accompanied the scents, most of them self-tuning to match her profile. Annoying variants on nursery rhymes being especially popular. Past Market Square, the twenty-second century disappeared. Stone walls and wrought iron fences replaced the rows of shops, and she noticed several students carrying paper books. A narrow alley called Senate House Passage led down to Trinity Hall. She stepped through a stone archway into the college itself. Before her, a grassy courtyard opened, bathed in sunlight. She still had a few minutes before her appointment, so she took Connor out of the stroller for a quick cuddle. Ahem! A tubby man in a black hat, black jacket, black pants, and crisp white shirt stepped out of a room next to the college entrance. Can I help you? I'm Pauline Foster. I've an appointment to see the bursar at eleven. Ah. The tubby man waggled his fingers at Connor. The bursar's not very keen on children. If you like, I could keep your baby with me in the porter's lodge. Really? Thank you. She didn't want to leave Connor, but she didn't know how to refuse without offending the man. It's very kind of you to offer. No trouble. I've a grandson. Looks about the same age. The porter reached over and tickled Connor's tummy. Connor stared up at the man's face. Then. His bottom lip quivered, and he started sobbing. I'm sorry, he's not used to other people. I'd better keep him with me. Pauline rocked Connor in her arms, trying to quiet him. If Connor fussed during her interview, the bursar might have second thoughts about hiring her. Surely it wouldn't matter if she paused him this once.
she kissed Connor on the forehead, then tapped in the pause code. The interview with the bursar went very well. Trinity Hall would not only pay generously, they were offering her a great deal of freedom in the design. They had reviewed her earlier work and trusted her to produce an understated collection of murals in keeping with the ambiance of the 800 year old college. After signing the contract, Pauline estimated that she would need to work an average of six hours a day to finish within the eight months the agreement specified. The money from Trinity Hall would enable her to hire babysitters. But she didn't want someone else to watch Connor. She wanted to do it herself. For a week, she stopped work every time Connor woke up, trying not to think about how far behind she was falling. Finally, she admitted that she either had to get babysitters or to use the pauser on a regular basis. She hated the idea of pausing Connor every day. But that was her own personal hang up, a legacy of being paused herself as a child, paused for a total of ten years, during which time her little brother had barely been paused at all. She dimly remembered the time when Harold was smaller than herself, a chubby Buddha baby gurgling and spitting up. After that, he rapidly overtook her, growing taller. Stronger, starting school before her, treating her as a baby when she should have been his big sister. She used to check the readout on her pauser belt every morning to see if her parents had paused her overnight. Days, sometimes weeks, disappeared at one gulp. When she was five, she had asked her parents, Why do you pause me? Don't you like me? Of course we like you, Polly. Her mother had said, smiling but somehow still looking sad. Her mother picked her up to give her a rare hug, and Pauline held on tight, so tight to her mother's shoulder, breathing in traces of honeysuckle perfume. It's one of those things you'll understand when you're older. We want you and Harold to be very, very happy, but it's complicated. Explain me why, Pauline had said. Later, her mother told her. Loosening Pauline's grip and setting her down on the floor. As Pauline had grown older, her parents had come up with an ingenious flotilla of rationalizations for her mounting pause time. Anything from the importance of Harold getting piano lessons while Monsieur Hubert was available to the necessity of pausing Pauline until the boarding school had a vacancy for her. Even as a young child, Pauline had understood on some level that they were only excuses. Whether or not they admitted it to themselves, her parents preferred spending time with Harold. Harold was funny, charming, clever. Pauline was a shy, awkward, resentful child. But she wasn't her parents. Pausing Connor for a few hours a day would be easier on him than having to adjust to babysitters. On the eighth morning after signing the Trinity Hall contract, Pauline paused Connor. She unpaused him each time she made herself a cup of tea. She unpaused him for lunch. She stopped work an hour earlier than she had planned. The next day, she only unpaused him for lunch. A week later, she paused him for a twelve hour stretch, caught up in a recreation of Trinity Hall through the centuries. When she unpaused him that night, Connor rolled over and smiled at her, unaware that anything odd had happened. 
Pauline tickled his toes, so full of happiness she felt as if it were spilling out of her. She had been such a fool, letting her past distort her objectivity. Connor was too young to know that anything strange had happened, and this way she could give him her undivided attention every waking moment of his infancy. That must surely be the best possible upbringing, whether or not she used the pauser to achieve it. For Connor's first birthday, Pauline took him to central London. He crawled over the grass in Hyde Park, spending a minute trying to grasp a twig between his thumb and forefinger, then diving down to bite the stick instead. In Trafalgar Square, he buried his face in Pauline's sweater when a host of rainbow-colored tourist pigeons lifted into the air beside them. At lunchtime, the smell of curry lured Pauline into an Indian restaurant. Paused or unpaused section, asked the hostess, a slim young woman in a sari that sang softly whenever she stopped speaking. Unpaused. The hostess led her past a couple who were presumably waiting for the paused section. At the rear of the restaurant, two empty tables with high chairs stood in a dimly lit, roped-off area. As Pauline settled Connor into his high chair, a customer at a neighboring table waved for a waiter. Have you any other tables available? He asked loudly, looking over his shoulder at Connor as he spoke. Sorry, sir. The waiter bowed his head regretfully. Duh! Connor said, pulling the silverware onto the floor. He beamed at Pauline as she picked up a spoon and two forks and set them down further away from him. Duh! Happy birthday, said Pauline. She pulled a stuffed bunny out of her pocket, hoping Connor would chew on it quietly. Gah-bah! said Connor at full volume. He dropped the bunny on the floor and looked over the edge of his high chair at where it had fallen. Pauline reached for his pauser belt and tapped in the code. The readout on the belt said, Pause time, 59 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes. It was Connor's first birthday by the calendar, but she had paused him for nearly two months of that time. She ordered chicken tikka masala and downloaded the arts news to her digitizer. The food tasted delicious, the chicken tender and succulent, the sauce hot, creamy, and savory. But she couldn't finish her meal, couldn't concentrate on the review of the Tate Gallery's new exhibition. The black, baby-shaped shadow in the high chair waited in perfect silence, distracting no one in the restaurant, except for Pauline. A few days after Connor's birthday, Pauline completed the murals for Trinity Hall. Her brother still hadn't seen Connor, and she had earned a holiday, so she decided to visit him in Paris. Paris was beautiful in the early summer, the trees and the lawns of vibrant green, Occasionally, trams hummed along the streets, but otherwise the city sounded like an idyllic country village. Birds, the chatter of schoolchildren, the chirp of crickets. Within the city limits, ads were limited to visuals only, and Pauline relished the quiet. But the visit to her brother was a disaster. When Pauline arrived, Annette, Harold's wife, pecked her on each cheek, and apologized that Harold wouldn't be back until supper. 
But he will be home by seven," said Annette. "He never fails when he is in town. He is such a good father, so aware of the importance of a family environment." Pauline nodded as if she'd known this. She couldn't work out why Annette grated on her nerves. Was it her fluent but prettily accented English? Her impeccable appearance? And you and Connor? Continued Annette. You are here alone. We.、Oui. Said Pauline. I mean, yes. She couldn't possibly use her high school French with Annette. Such a shame," said Annette. "I wish I could introduce you to your nephew and nieces immediately, but Nanny has taken them to their gym class. How nice for them," said Pauline. Annette led her to one of the mini reception rooms. They had a polite conversation filled with. Awkward pauses while Pauline chased after Connor as he tried to destroy the elegant furnishings. Connor's cousins returned late in the afternoon. They were pretty children. The boy, six years old, his twin sisters, four, well-behaved, neat, bilingual, already able to swim, ride ponies, and play the piano. The children smiled almost constantly, but never laughed or shouted. At dinner that evening, Harold thanked Pauline for coming to see them. Then quizzed his children about their day. They answered him seriously, intelligently, respectfully. The boy even joined in a discussion of the coming elections. Connor threw his food onto the floor, then cried when a robot mole scurried across to clean it up. Maybe I should go to bed with him now. He's probably overexcited," said Pauline. The baby sleeps in the same room as you. Annette's pencil-thin eyebrows arched. Yes," said Pauline. Her brother and his wife said nothing for a long moment. Then, "I'll have the crib moved," said Annette as Harold chimed in with, "Of course, you're on your own, so it's different." Pauline wanted to say that she liked having Connor close to her at night, but she couldn't think of a way to do so that didn't sound critical of other arrangements. And she couldn't criticize Harold, the textbook perfect father with his textbook perfect children. There's only one bedroom in our flat, so Connor and I share it. She mumbled. How cozy," said Annette, without conviction. "But but," shouted Connor, leaning forward to tug the end of the tablecloth. The wine glasses wobbled. Pauline hoisted him up. "I'm sorry to cut the evening short, but we're going to bed now." She waited while Annette gave instructions for moving the crib, too embarrassed to admit that Connor shared her bed. But even when the two of them were alone in their room, with Connor giggling as Pauline pretended to eat his hat, Harold's casual "You're on your own" still rankled, together with Annette's earlier remark about the value of a family environment. How much did it matter that she couldn't afford riding lessons for Connor, or gym classes, or a garden the size of a football field? How much did it matter that she didn't have a partner? Long after Connor had fallen asleep beside her, Pauline lay awake, wishing she'd known Connor's father better, wishing he'd wanted even a little involvement in his son's life. Bit by bit. Pauline increased the amount of time she used the pauser. She used it when she worked at home, when she visited clients, when she showered, when she needed to nap. Then she used it when she felt too depressed to play with Connor, 
Then, when she felt guilty because he only had the cheapest AI edubot on the market, she used the pauser for a whole week while she read up on child rearing. Then, for another week, while she brooded over what she had learned, children benefited from a warm, caring, stimulus-rich environment. Pauline loved Connor, but her flat was too small, and Connor needed better toys, and he needed a family, not just a mother. She went to a makeover shop, and the woman there drew up twenty different simulations of Pauline in fashionable new styles. Before Pauline settled on the least horrible of the batch, she had never had much luck with dating. At a scant two months, her affair with Connor's father had been her longest so far. But she spent an hour on her computer completing the questionnaire for the Londoner's Partner for You service. One night in October, she paused Connor to go on her first date since he was born. The readout on the belt said, "Pause time: one hundred and twenty-four days, five hours, thirty-two minutes." She had paused Connor for a quarter of his life, most of it in the last few months. She left the flat, locked the door behind her, unlocked it again, ran back and kissed the solid, unyielding blackness of Connor's paused form. And left the flat for the second time. Her date was an older man, maybe fifty. He smelled of lime. His skin had a lime green tint. His contact lenses were lime green. His hair formed a lime green cone above his head. I love green, he said. My favorite color, one hundred percent. But I may have gone overboard tonight. Too much of a good thing, and all that. I like green too, said Pauline. Though green skin didn't appeal to her at all, but she could see the man was nervous, maybe even as nervous as she was. He talked rapidly, determinedly, resorting to a discussion of the weather rather than allowing a gap in the conversation. Over dinner at a pricey Italian restaurant, he assured Pauline that he absolutely loved children, would have liked half a dozen, just never found the right woman. But when a family with two noisy toddlers sat down nearby. He shuddered theatrically. I like children. I said that, and I meant it. He bent forward and continued in a low voice. But to everything there is a season, so they say, and I agree. I absolutely agree. Bringing two brats like that into a restaurant—don't they know what pausers are for? Um," said Pauline, stirring her linguine round and round on her plate. "I'll be back in a moment." She went to the restroom and splashed her face with water. A printed sign on the mirror said, "Lost count of how long you pause your children? Maybe it's time to join a pauser help circle. Call zero eight zero 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 pausers. We're here twenty four hours a day." At least she wasn't as bad as that. Why, she only paused Connor for a few hours a day. Okay, maybe more than a few hours, maybe quite a lot more. She rinsed her hands, but she'd only really depended on the pauser for the last few weeks, and that was just because she needed to earn more money and find a partner so that Connor could be part of a family and have the same chances as Harold's children. The water ran gurgling down the sink, and Pauline started to cry, and couldn't stop, couldn't stop, shaking with great gulping sobs. Her parents 
had spent a small fortune raising her, buying her every toy under the sun, hiring a couturier to design her wardrobe, but they hadn't even wanted to have her in the same house. She had begged and begged not to go to boarding school, but they had sent her anyway and kept Harold at home instead. She turned off the tap. She blew her nose in a handful of toilet paper. She went back to her lime-green date and told him she was leaving. As soon as Pauline got home, she unpaused Connor. He squirmed in her arms, babbling excitedly, smelling of baby shampoo. They played on the floor together for half an hour, and then she carried Connor over to the phone, a noisy armful, and she placed a call to that number from the restaurant mirror. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Mary Soon Lee. Mary, thank you so much for that. And a big thank you to Amy Ames, you're a star. Next up is Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news, Jim Squire. Greetings and revelatious mentations, my dichotomous listeners. And welcome to this March 2014 science news update. I'm your host for this wiki-wacky science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. I don't know about you guys, but I am pretty sick of winter at this point. I certainly don't look forward to summer with its ravening temperatures, but I could use a bit of spring right now. Spring seems to be teasing us around here in the last couple of days. It will get up into the mid-50s and sunny, and then the next day we'll be in the teens, below freezing and snowy again. That cycle has to break at some point. At any rate, I will warm you all with some new tales of science. I will start with a story that listener Mark Zanfardino sent in to me. Mark takes great pride in finding interesting stories, and this is certainly right up there. The story was published a couple of months back in the journal Nature and comes out of Dr. Enzi Shen's lab of the National Institute of Biological Sciences in China. It concerns determining biological age in the worm C. elegans. The small roundworm, Xenorhabditis elegans, has been a model organism for animal development for the last 20 years or so. It makes a great model because they are tiny but transparent so that you can see every bit of their active insides. And they actually have an exact number of cells that can be counted and tracked and traced in every part of their body. Try doing that with a human or even a mouse. It grows up in the exact same way every time from a single fertilized egg cell to 959 cells as an adult. And since, again, its body is transparent, it's allowed scientists to map its growth and study internal changes in great detail. Shen now claims that she can predict how old and the length of life of a C. elegans with a new process that examines the mitochondria, the so-called power plant of the cell. As I mentioned previously, oxygen, despite what we think of it, is not as wonderful a thing as we actually think. Oxygen can be quite destructive in several degradative forms. And if you don't have the enzymes to deal with those dangerous forms, then your DNA and proteins are going to be prone to be damaged. The dangerous form of oxygen, called oxygen radicals, will certainly interact with all sorts of biomolecules and damage them severely. 
A free radical is created when an atom has acquired unpaired electrons buzzing around the nucleus. Inside the mitochondria, there's constant formation of free radicals, sometimes called reactive oxygen species. Some scientists have suggested that these so-called radical high-energy forms of oxygen may account for the aging of organisms which live in our atmosphere. Basically, the longer you live, the more damage arises from exposure to those free radical oxygens. Shen thought that if she could measure the amount of oxidative stress in the worms, she could predict how long they would live. She had previously discovered how to detect and count short bursts of free radicals in cells. She added proteins that fluoresce during oxidative stress and detected levels of oxidative stress by measuring the flashes of light that were given off by the dyes. The more flashes, the more oxidative stress that the cell was under. That is, the larger the number of free radicals present. She observed individual worms over their entire 21-day lifespan. The worms were at the peak of their reproductive ability during the second and third day of their lives, which is tantamount to about the ages of 18 to 30 in humans. And soon after that, the worms started their steady decline toward old age, and by about the 15th day, most of them are considered elderly. About as elderly as most 15-year-olds think that a human is who's over the age of 30. Shen found two periods when oxidative stress increased in the worm over those 21 days. The first period occurred around the third day of life when the worms were laying their eggs. And the other occurred at about the 15th day when the worms were quote-unquote old. Shen's group thereafter compared those stress findings using other worms who were genetically engineered to have longer or shorter lifespans. And yes, they found that these short-living worms started oxidative stress before 15 days and about 9 days, and much higher oxidative levels at an early age. And the longer-living worms had delayed high levels of oxygen radicals and lower levels at an early age of 3 days. Shen concluded that the oxidative stress levels of a worm during early life can determine how long they can live. Yeah, it seems pretty clear that Shen agrees with that hypothesis that the more oxidative damage there is, the quicker you will age. That same hypothesis assumes that the diseases of aging result due to the increasing inability of cells to repair damage caused by that oxidative stress. Of course, all of this assumes the opposite as well. Organisms that have long lives must lower their oxidative stress by producing more antioxidants. But it ain't necessarily so. First, even though humans make less antioxidative chemicals than rats, rabbits, hamsters, and mice, not reducing our radical load as much, humans still live much longer lives than any of those rodents. Second, organisms that are anaerobic, that is that they live without oxygen present at all, they don't live forever. They have lifespans just like everything else on Earth does. So Shen is doing some very cool work in worms, and she may be able to predict their lifespans based on their early oxidative stress, but it may not work for any other organism. Well, Shen is not the only one who has been working on lifespan research and the ability to predict its duration. Dr. Utpal Banerjee at UCLA in January published a paper in the journal Cell that looks at an entirely different physiological phenomenon and lifespan. Unlike humans, many animals use the sense of smell as a guide through life. They divide the world into good 
and bad based on smells. Olfaction distinguishes nutritional foods from toxic ones, helps identify appropriate mates, and allows the detection of predators. A lot of research has gone into elucidating how odors are detected and how they are met with the appropriate behavioral responses, processes that are still not entirely understood. However, getting back to the original point, there's now evidence that in addition to its roles in acutely sensing odor, olfaction is involved in the regulation of the general physiology of animals. Once again, in the roundworm C. elegans and the fruit fly, the olfactory system regulates lifespan as animals that have compromised olfaction live longer than their smelling counterparts, apparently. This exciting discovery has left many scientists scratching their heads. I mean, they're asking themselves, how on earth could olfaction have such a dramatic effect on physiology? Well, Banerjee accidentally discovered that during blood cell development in fruit fly larvae, that when he interfered with a receptor for the neurotransmitter GABA, which is gamma-aminobutyric acid, within blood cell progenitors, that is blood stem cells, most of them differentiated early into blood cells. That suggests that the nervous system is involved in the regulation of the generation of blood cells. To find out more about how this neurotransmitter regulates blood cell development, Banerjee and his group set out to pinpoint its exact source. He found a cluster of cells in the fruit fly brain that secrete GABA into the larval blood to be responsible, since blocking the production of neurotransmitter within these cells led to early differentiation of the stem cells into blood cells. That demonstrated that the fly nervous system is indeed directly involved in the process of blood development. But what could be the function of this regulation? In order to address that question, the team tried to find parts of the nervous system that induced the secretory cells to release GABA. They found that inhibition of the olfactory system prevents the release of neurotransmitter from the secretory cells. That inhibition leads to early differentiation of stem cells, which suggests that the detection of smells is required for the maintenance of the pre-differentiated state of the blood stem cells. Now, that's all well and nice and lovely from an academic standpoint, but does it have any other worth than that? Well, I think it does. What makes this finding particularly interesting is that it provides a possible mechanism for how olfaction affects lifespan. In the absence of odors, or if the olfactory system is inhibited, the number of blood cells that is being generated is actually increased. As these blood cells are involved in many aspects of innate immunity for the animal, this increase in number could leave the organism better protected against microbial agents and help the animal live longer. It's unclear whether the development of higher animals is affected in this way, but clearly humans are so bad at olfactory tasks, that is smelling, perhaps that would be one reason that we have increased lifespans. Perhaps we just hyperstimulate our immune system in an effort to better protect ourselves against the uncharacterized, nasty old world that's out there. Also, of course, there's absolutely no evidence for that, and it is completely pie-in-the-sky speculation on my part. The next story is an update on the amazing proteins that can be found in milk. You may remember last month I spoke about a couple of applications of isolated milk proteins, including for lowering blood sugar and as an anti-cancer agent. Well, I'm back with a new function found for those proteins. 
Apparently, not only does milk do a body good, but it works to protect your fabrics as well. Dr. Jenny Alonghi of Italy's Polytechnic Institute of Turin reported in the March issue of the journal Industrial and Engineering Chemistry Research that she has discovered a milk protein that is flame retardant. In her research, she dunked cotton polyester and a polyester cotton blend into a liquid formula of powdered milk proteins called casins, which, by the way, are the key to making cheese. She found that the phosphate-rich proteins extinguished fires set on the fabrics, slowing the spread of blazes by 40 to 70 percent. Alonghi says, quote, Upon burning, casins may release acids, such as phosphoric acid, that form a molecular firewall and keep the flames from fanning out. A casein-based flame retardant would be a safe alternative to current fireproofing chemicals, which can give off toxic fumes, unquote. The thing that you are not going to see very soon will be the milk fire extinguisher. I'm not sure whether she was joking or not, but Alonghi says, quote, that may have a delayed debut while we work on a version that can be easily washed out of cloth and does not smell like a rancid dairy, unquote. Perhaps the winner of the Captain Obvious Award for this year will be the next story. Frankly, I wonder how they got federal funding. But here it is. Practicing piano makes you a better player. Well, there you go. I guess my music teacher back in fourth grade could have been given several hundred thousand dollars to determine the same thing. I have to admit, I'm not being completely fair here, though. Let me explain. This work came out of the lab of Dr. Brian Mathias in the psych department of McGill University. It was published this month in the journal Cerebral Cortex. The work actually shows that instead of simply hearing a melody, learning to play a song makes people more familiar with it. This is evidence that the brain has an enhanced ability to learn by doing and not simply by being passive. Uh, that's another way of saying practice, you ninny, if you want to play this piano concerto. Don't listen to that MP3. Anyway, Matthias asked 20 skilled pianists, some professional musicians, to learn 12 simple melodies by listening to them or playing them. In later tests, the pianists were better at spotting a single errant note in a recording of a piece that they had played than at spotting a wrong note in a piece they had only heard. Electrodes monitoring the pianist's brain activity revealed that hearing a wrong note in a previously played song activated parts of the brain that handle movement, as when the fingers strike the keys. Matthias says, quote, physically doing a task sears its memory into the brain in a special way, unquote. From a completely non-scientific standpoint, I can vouch for that statement, and I think sear is the perfect word. Once I've myself learned a piece of music well, my cerebellum remembers even if I don't do it consciously. My fingers remember. It's a very strange feeling, which I suspect most musicians have experienced, but that seems to be the case of it. One professional musician I heard from had an interesting opinion on Matthias's work. Basically, they said that just listening to a piece of music to learn it may actually be beneficial to performance and give a performance a personal touch. Quote, Personally, I find playing music from hearing it opens up creativity because I remember things that weren't there. My wrong notes often throw in a diminished or an augmented chord where there wasn't one before, unquote. Yes, basically they're saying that 
making a mistake in exacting reproduction can be a good thing. Matthias states as his conclusion, quote, Outcomes suggest that auditory motor interactions contribute to memory benefits conferred by production experience and support a role of motor prediction mechanisms in the production effect, unquote. Okay, take that as you will. This next story is out of the potential horror movie file. And I swear, some of the worst genre of films have started with this exact plot. Scientists have discovered an ancient, giant virus in the permafrost of the Siberian Arctic. They say it is harmless to humans and animals. The discovery was made in the lab of Dr. Jean-Michel Clavary of Marseille University, France. It was published online in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science on January 30th. Now, as a rule, viruses are small. In fact, they are so small that even though scientists have known viruses are distinct from bacteria since the late 1800s, viruses were not visualized until the invention of the electron microscope toward the middle of the 1900s. So any large viruses are always an amazing and a bit appalling kind of thing. It's a bit like seeing a six-foot-high rabbit. It's just hard to believe it even exists. We have known about so-called megaviruses for over 10 years now, but Clavary still made the headlines with his discovery, not because the virus turns people into flesh-eating zombies. He has made a record-breaking find. It's the largest virus, largest megavirus ever found. The new virus was dug up from the permafrost in Siberia and was dubbed Pithovirus sibiricum. It measures 1.5 micrometers in length and half a micrometer in diameter. That is much bigger than the former record holders, the Pandora viruses, which are only about one micrometer long and about half a micrometer in diameter. A micrometer is a millionth of a meter. To put that size of the virus in perspective, an E. coli bacteria is about one micrometer in diameter by about three micrometers long. So the diameter of the pithovirus is a bit more than the E. coli, although only half its length. That means that it's so big that you can see it with a high-powered optical microscope. You don't need an electron microscope to see this virus. The pithovirus was identified as part of a survey of the viruses of the Siberian permafrost, and it was isolated from a sample that's more than 30,000 years old, according to the researchers. Nonetheless, when given access to an amoeba host in the lab, the virus infected the cell, raising concerns about the possible risk such giant viruses might pose if they're released from the thawing Arctic ground. I guess I'm not the only one worried about the zombies. Clavary says in response, quote, The revival of such an ancestral amoeba-affecting virus suggests that the thawing of permafrost either from global warming or industrial exploitation of circumpolar regions might not be exempt from future threats to human or animal health, unquote. Was that supposed to make us feel better? Because glaciers and permafrosts are melting. We might get infected by some sort of horrible plague. He goes on to say, however, quote, only a small proportion of the viruses on Earth represent viruses that can infect mammals, and an even smaller proportion pose any risk to humans. Still, vigilance and continued testing will be necessary. The notion that a virus could be eradicated from the planet is plain wrong and gives us a false sense of security. 
at least a stock of vaccine should be kept just in case, unquote. Wait, what? Is he implying that we might uncover smallpox or bubonic plague that would reinfect humanity? Well, yeah, that and worse. Clavary goes on to say, quote, We might be able to eradicate viruses from the surface of the planet, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a single particle of that virus still alive somewhere. If viable variants are still there, that is a good recipe for disaster. It may be there is a Neanderthal virus out there somewhere that might infect a human. We should prepare ourselves, unquote. Okay, Neanderthals? Seriously? Is it just me or does this French guy make Ralph Nader look like a Pollyanna? Wow, and I thought I was a pessimist. Seriously, though, changing world climate has made me worry about tropical diseases coming farther north as the temperatures rise up here in the temperate regions, especially insect-borne diseases. But I never in a million years considered that melting Arctic ice in the north would be a source for new diseases as well. I guess it takes a special kind of guy to come up with that one. Thanks, Doc, for adding to my worry load. The last story of the night involves the human ability to match up a face with a name. Some people are good at this. My wife remembers the name of every parent and child and not only my son's kindergarten class, but the second grade kids and moms as well. I am always impressed. Frankly, I am lucky most days that I remember my own name. My wife thinks I don't try to remember names, but frankly, is this something that you should try to do or is it something that should come to you without any major effort on your part? It certainly doesn't look like my wife is making any effort. She just remembers. Well, perhaps my problem is that I have a mutation in a gene that was recently discovered by Dr. David Skuse's lab at University College of London. Skuse's work was just published February 14th in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. When mice don't produce the hormone oxytocin, or its receptor, they lose the ability to recognize other familiar mice by their smell. Although humans use other means for identifying one another, researchers have hypothesized that oxytocin plays a role in human recognition as well. Skuse and company report links between a particular single nucleotide polymorphism in the oxytocin receptor, OXTR, and social recognition abilities in members of 198 families with a single autistic child. A single nucleotide polymorphism is an alteration in a single base of the coding sequence of a gene that is found in a population. It's a single base pair mutation that does not kill function in a gene or protein, but may alter the way the protein works in a subtle manner. Very often, these polymorphisms are signifiers that something is wrong or not quite standard in the phenotype of the individual. Skew says, quote, One feature of autism is that there is a disruption in some aspect of social cognition. We chose families who had members with autism because we know that across the whole group there is a wide range of variability in social cognitive dysfunction. The researchers tested members of these families for facial recognition memory, emotional discrimination, and gaze detection, and then they looked at these alterations in that receptor gene. None of the polymorphisms they found were linked to autism, but the group found one variant, which they called RS237887, that was strongly associated with facial recognition memory in the individuals with autism as well as their family members. Skew said, quote, to me, this is really cool because we have previously shown that mice with a complete deletion of this gene can't remember other mice, but mice don't use facial recognition. 
They use olfactory recognition. They tell each other apart by smell. And this suggests that oxytocin is affecting some kind of common process across man and mouse when it comes to social recognition, even though different sensory modalities are being used, unquote. Skews argues that oxytocin is not just the so-called cuddle chemical responsible for the formation of monogamous bonds, but also a single molecule that makes social stimuli more salient both in mice and men. He says, quote, We think oxytocin helps the brain pay more attention to the fine details in social situations. And what this study suggests is that the OXTR receptor is involved in a very fundamental smaller process of social recognition, unquote. Well, I guess I have to ask myself then, do I have problems with social recognition because I'm a geek, or am I a geek because I have problems with social recognition? I guess the world may never know. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Remember to coach yourself in milk in case of fire. Don't melt the permafrost. Practice so you can get to Carnegie Hall. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, what can I say? Always a pleasure. Honestly, it's lovely to get your work month in, month out. Thank you so much. Next up is the main fiction, and it is Nanny's Day by Lee, Leah Cypress. I'll give you a little head up about Leah. Leah wrote her first story in first grade. The narrator was an ice cream cone in the process of being eaten. In fourth grade, she wrote her first book about a girl who gets shipwrecked on a desert island with a faithful and heroic dog, a rip-off of both The Black Stallion and all the Lassie movies. Very impressive. After selling her first story, Temple of Stone, while she was in high school, she gave in to her mother's importuning about being practical and majored in biology at Brooklyn College. She went, then went on to Columbia Law School and practiced law for almost two years at DeBevos and Plimpton LLP, a large law firm in New York City. She kept writing and submitting in her spare time, and finally, a mere 15 years after her first story acceptance, she sold her first novel to Greenwillow Books, HarperCollins. Her most recent novel, Death Sworn, is about a sorceress forced to serve as a magic tutor to a secret set of assassins. It was published in HarperCollins in 2014, March. There you go. Now, this story is narrated by none other than Mer Lafferty. Oh, yes, how cool is that? One of the originals out there. Give you a little background to Mer. Mer Lafferty is the author, podcaster and editor. She lives in Durham, North Carolina with her husband and 11-year-old daughter. Books started with podcast-only titles. And I remember, you know what I mean, like I say, Mer was one of the kind of, the originals out there and still going. Do you know what I mean? And just before I kind of get into that, oh, boy, forgive us, Mer. But Mer did one of the originals as well, one of the first to kind of, tap into Kickstarter, and that was amazing when I seen, you know, the kind of amount of money that, you know, you, you could possibly get with that as well. And, but actually I was talking to her later on in, in, in the, I don't know, months after, and, you know, it wasn't all plain sailing, do you know what I mean? But it was, you know, I think Mer as well there, again, one of the very first to kind of try that avenue, you know, try podcasts and try this. Great inspiration to anyone out there. 
But anyway, books. Starting with podcast-only titles, Murr has written several books and novellas. Her first professionally published book, The Shambling Guide to New York City, is in bookstores now. The sequel, The Shambling Guides to Ghost Train in New Orleans, will be out on March the 4th. She writes urban fantasy, superhero, satire, afterlife mythology, and Christmas stories. Podcast. She has been podcasting since 2004, man. <laughs> oh, when she started it, SA Focus Show, Geek Foo Action Grip. Oh, you know, it's just, I forget as well. You know, you kind of will go on putting hairs on the back of my neck here. Then she started the award winning I Should Be Writing in 2005, which is still going today. She was the editor of Escape Far Apart from 2010 to 2012, and she also runs the Angry Robot Books podcast. Non-fiction, Murr has written for several magazines, including Knights of the Dinner Table, Anime Insider, and Escapist. In January 2014, Murr graduated from the Stone Coast Programme at the University of Southern Maine with her MFA in Popular Fiction. Way to go, Murr. And like I say, it's lovely just to even kind of talk about Murr. I haven't, you know, we kind of, I think when we all started podcasting, and like I say, Murr was there, oh, oodles, two years before I even, I think, discovered podcast. And we kind of were all in this kind of like, you know, little hub that was kind of just doing wonders, you know. And time goes by and we seem to kind of like have like seeds scattered in the wind, you know. And we, you don't, don't often keep in touch, but I was the best memory I had of Murr as well is, I think it was in 2010 when we won the Hugo Award. And if you remember, that, well, the kind of there was a few interviews afterwards. The interviews, and you know, after the kind of awards were done at the kind of the drinks party, and I always here in Mur, you know what I mean? And it was like just so happy. Do you know what I mean? Happy for Starships over, but happy for the kind of in general, you know, Hugo's and kind of podcasts coming together, but. A little bit, a little bit tipsy, yes. Just, but just so happy about it, and I will always remember that. So, Mur, you're a star, a true, true kind of hero of this kind of genre we're in, and technology. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Nanny's Day by Leah Sipas, narrated by Mur Lafferty. Everybody knows you don't keep a nanny for more than three months. The agency even asked me, when I hired Steph, if I wanted to make an appointment to interview someone new in February. I actually laughed out loud. I can barely keep an appointment I make a week in advance, and told them I would call. Which I intended to. I really did. But then the case that was supposed to settle didn't settle, and Sammy had an allergic reaction to peanut butter, which was scary and also very time-consuming, and then he had a regular cold, which meant I spent all my spare time cuddling on the couch with him, and... I don't know. The three months passed and slipped into four and then five, and I didn't notice. Until Saturday morning, the week of the trial, when I was home because I had told the managing partner that if I was going to be in D.C. working the trial for most of the next week, I was going to spend that weekend, Mother's Day weekend, at home with my son. My insistence on spending most Sundays at home had already compromised my partnership track, and he scowled and muttered before he agreed to an entire weekend, but I held firm. So I made pancakes, and we were sitting at the table eating, and I was trying to decide whether playing shoots and ladders or reading books was a better use of our quality time when Sammy made a face and pushed his pancakes away. 
"'What's the matter?' I asked. "'He stuck his lower lip out. "'I like them better when Steph makes them.' "'Oh,' I said. "'The sense of guilt was so familiar I barely registered it. "'Of course he liked Steph's pancakes better. "'She made him breakfast five days a week. "'I blinked away the slight stinging in my eyes.' and forced myself not to go through the well-worn mental calculation of how many more hours she spent with him than I did. Okay, well, I made them, and these are the ones we have. Are you going to eat them? He shoved the plate across the table. No. Fine, I said, a little snappily. I don't enjoy making pancakes, and it's not like I need the calories myself. But rejecting food, I reminded myself, was one of the few ways a three-year-old had to assert independence. I should let it go. I kept my voice even. If you don't want to eat, Sammy, that's okay. Do you want me to read you Nate the Great? His face screwed up. I want Steph to read it to me. Sammy, I want Steph to take care of me all the time. He glared at me, lower lip jutting out. She said that she would if that's what I want. The tantrum took off then, tears rolling down his smooth, round cheeks. And that's what I want! Which was how I ended up at my kitchen table at 3 a.m., ignoring the mountain of trial prep piled up to my right, instead reading frantically through my three-page contract with the child care agency. The clause was there, in fine print, near the bottom of the second page. The caregiver, Steph Sayan, agrees not to sue for custody at any point during or subsequent to the period of this agreement. Short, simple, reassuring. And never tested in court. I drummed my fingers on the table, trying to turn my attention to the two hours of work I still had to do before I went to sleep. But my eyes seemed glued to that single line. The agency had added the non-custody clause last year, after one of the popular news vids had run a segment on nannies who successfully sued parents for custody of their children. The clause sounded ironclad, but no one knew if it would stand up in court. Everyone was waiting for that first test case, when a nanny tried to sue for custody of her charge, despite the non-custody clause. She said that she would if that's what I want. I did not want to be that test case. A wail erupted from the other room. I turned the contract face down and hurried in to where Sammy was sitting up in bed, his face screwed up, tears streaming down his round face. An instinctive sympathy lanced through me, so sharp it hurt. Mommy! I pulled myself onto the bed. The rail field, keyed to him, flickered as I passed through it and wrapped my arms around his small, shaking body. What's the matter, Sammy? Did you have a nightmare? Ten minutes of incoherent wails later, I managed to get him back under his blanket, still whimpering. When I tried to slide off the bed, though, he locked his arms around my neck. No! Stay with me, Mommy! Sammy, I can't! In a split second, those ten minutes were undone. Sammy launched himself at me, screaming, and I vainly tried to disentangle myself. Being overpowered by a three-year-old was a regular occurrence in my life, but I was tired and worried and achy, and my patience snapped. I grabbed both his wrists, held them away from me, and slid through the rail field. He was repelled by the field when he tried to follow me, and his wails reached ear-splitting pitch. Though I knew the rail field was designed with enough flex to keep from hurting him, I couldn't help wincing. Sammy, I can't! 
If I got into his bed, he would be up for an hour trying to get me to tell him stories. Mommy has a lot of work to do, and you need to sleep. You're a very tired boy. I don't want you, he screamed, battering at the field with his fists and feet. I want Steph. And that was the end of any chance of my sleeping. I had planned a trip to the aquarium for the next day and was looking forward to Sammy's wide-eyed wonder when I showed him the dolphins. But I was so exhausted from my sleepless night that instead I ended up letting Sammy watch two hours of television while I napped on the couch. On Mother's Day. Go me. Two hours, Annette said when she showed up for movie night. That's what Becca watches on a good Sunday. You're too hard on yourself, Kate agreed, flopping backward on the couch. Motherhood isn't the priesthood, Margaret. You don't have to forswear all worldly things. Kate's ex-husband had custody of her daughter, and Annette was a stay-at-home mom. This was going to be a pointless discussion. I smiled weakly and went to get wine for both of them. Last week, Kate had broken up with her latest boyfriend, so I'd made sure to get her favorite, and very expensive, wine. She grinned when I handed her the glass, and I settled on the couch between her and Annette. It was our yearly Mother's Day ritual. We got together, ate pizza, drank too much, and watched Goodbye Nanny. I wasn't looking forward to it this year, but I flicked on my V-screen and began drinking even before the movie started. The case imprinted on America's memory, drawled the voiceover, and the screen lit up with the overdramatized version of the story everyone knew. It started from the point of view of the nanny, a plump 50-year-old woman who had raised someone else's child from infancy, grown to love him as if he were her own, the phrase they used back then. Then it switched to the mother with her business and recreational trips, her strings of affairs, her history of neglect. I never really wanted children, she told one of her lovers in one of the most famous scenes of the movie famous mostly because the lover was played by Steve Yu. But since he exists, I guess I love him. It's biological, you know? By the time the lawyer revealed she didn't even know the name of her son's favorite teddy bear, we were all bawling. But we saved our real tears for the end, when the nanny lost the case and was led away. The little boy flung himself against his mother's grip, her long fingernails cutting into his shoulders, screaming, Nana! Nana! Don't go! Please stay with me, Nana! Why are you going away? Why? The movie ended there, and text scrolled across the screen. The decision had been overturned five years later, reversing the bioist trend of American custody law. Too late for Edward Seaver or his nanny, but in time to save the next generation of children. The next generation of children remained on the V-screen, black on white, for a full minute. Then the credits rolled. Ironic, isn't it? Kate said, propping her feet up on a couch pillow. Annette was still sobbing. She'd only had two glasses of wine, but she got tipsy fast. They're thinking of renaming Mother's Day, calling it Nanny's Day or Caregiver's Day or something like that. Doesn't really have the same ring, does it? Annette sniffled. Still, it's about time. Mother's Day is kind of bioist. Most children, Kate said, wiggling her toes, are still raised by their parents. That doesn't mean we can't show sensitivity. Kate and I exchanged amused glances. 
Annette tended to get self-righteous when drunk. There's a reason this movie is shown every Mother's Day, to remind us about the dangers of bioist privilege. Just because we're their biological mothers, that doesn't automatically mean we're the ideal people to raise our children. I burst into tears. Twenty minutes later, my entire story was out, and I was still sobbing. Kate and Annette did their ineffectual best to comfort me, but it wasn't until Annette went to the bathroom that Kate slid down onto the floor next to me and lowered her voice. "'You've got to fire her,' she said. "'Tomorrow morning.' I swiped at my eyes. "'But what if she wants—' "'What she probably wants,' Kate said, "'is money.' Not custody. That's what most of the nannies want, and why most of the cases never go to trial. I bit my lip. I knew that was a horrible thing to say, borderline bioist, but I hoped it was true. I know a mother who lost the custody case, I said. I mean, my secretary knows someone who knows someone. The nanny moved to California. The mother hasn't seen her son in five years. He probably wouldn't even recognize her if she did see him. You won't lose Sammy, Kate said. Not you, Marge. You're a good mother. Sammy loves you. And that's what I want. Just a tantrum. Kids will say anything to get a reaction. Even so, I couldn't speak for a moment, my throat tight with fear. Tomorrow morning, I said finally. Thanks, Kate. I'm sorry I ruined movie night. Kate shrugged. There will be another Mother's Day next year, or whatever they're going to call it. Then Annette came out of the bathroom, and Kate and I fell silent. The firing didn't go well. I understand that you want him to learn another language. Steph's lips twisted on the words. But I think Sammy will be very upset by this. Perhaps more than you realize. I smiled tightly, hating this woman who had fed, bathed, and played with my son for the past seven months. Seven months. How had I let it come to this? I think he'll be okay. She folded both her hands on the table. She was a short, thin woman with shiny dark hair that she wore in a long ponytail. I had scoured through the five pages of reports from previous families she had worked for, all waxing ecstatic about her rapport with children. But I didn't know much about her personal life, except that she was in her mid-forties and divorced. I wondered if she had children of her own to love. She said that she would if that's what I want— Maybe she hadn't said it. Maybe Sammy had misunderstood or lied. I didn't dare ask her. She watched Sammy every day. I usually came home barely in time to put him to bed. How different would his life really be if she was the one who put him to bed, who stayed with him on weekends, too? The news vids had a story every week about a mother who had lost custody of her child to a nanny. The reporters were generally smug about it. The mothers, obviously, deserved it. A shiver ran through me. I said desperately, I could give you a bonus, uh, a large bonus. I do not want money, Stev said flatly. I want what is best for Sammy. Great. Now I had insulted her. I should have known better than to listen to Kate, whose opinions had always tilted right wing. Sammy was in the other room, frowning with concentration as he colored in a picture of a horse I had drawn for him. I glanced at him through the door, wanting desperately to go kneel next to him and wrap my arms around him and giggle with him over his color choices for the next half hour. But I had to go to work. Every morning until now, I had comforted myself with the thought that he really loved playing with Steph, that he wasn't sorry to see me leave. 
Is it your intention to fire me regardless of how it will affect Sammy? Steph asked. The slight formality of the sentence warned me. I stared at her for a moment. She smiled at me, a sharp-edged smile of triumph. No, I said, of course not. I just thought it was worth discussing. Once I was at work, a quick search of the firm's case database told me why that sentence had sounded memorized. It was. It was the sentence the nanny had used in McAvoy v. Chen, a successful nanny custody suit in Kentucky five years ago. I stood there staring at the screen for a long moment. Then I bolted from my office. It's not too late. Beverly Gatome swiveled her chair around and folded her hands on her desk. I understand how this feels, Margaret, but please calm down. The hysteria about the nanny custody issue is mostly media-driven. Most nannies have no interest in adopting the kids they watch, and even when they do, 99% of the time, the nannies lose the custody battles. But 1% of the time, they won. I didn't have to say it. Beverly had three kids and switched nannies every two months, like clockwork. But this is planned! I knew I sounded paranoid, but I didn't care. I trusted Beverly. You should have heard her. It was like she was following a script. You know how everyone is waiting for the case that tests the non-custody clause? I'm going to be it. They've chosen me. I swallowed hard. Because they think I'll lose. Because they thought I was a bad mother. Beverly grimaced sympathetically and turned back to her computer. Let's not jump to conclusions just yet, okay? Beverly was younger than I was. I had been her mentor when she joined the firm, and we had become close friends. But she was the custody expert. She tapped her fingers on the screen. There's no case law on the preemptive non-custody clause, but it doesn't look good. The whole point of the modern custody system is that a child should be taken care of by the adult who has the strongest emotional attachment to him, not the one with the strongest biological ties. I don't see a court ignoring the results of an attachment test because of a few lines in a contract saying the nanny can't sue. She pursed her lips and blew out a short breath. Did you offer her money? Yes. She wouldn't take it? I shook my head numbly. That's concerning. There was a 3D picture of Beverly's kids rotating above her computer. I looked at it, but I didn't see her girls. I saw the picture on my... Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. My desk of Sammy tilting his head at me with a bashful half-grin. The thought of him being taken away sent a stab of pain through my chest. Suddenly, the hours until the workday ended seemed like far too long to go without seeing him. On some days, I wished I could just quit my job, go home, and play with him on the living room floor until he was old enough for school. On most days, I knew I would have gone stark raving mad after a few days of it. So instead, I was at work, where, if I was really honest with myself, I wanted to be. I like immersing myself in my job, figuring out the complex legal problems I was so good at. I liked being an adult surrounded by adults. It was better than doing the same 12-piece puzzle for hours at a time. So Steph was the one doing that. Steph was the one who could do that, day in and day out. It didn't seem like sufficient reason for me to lose him, not when I loved him so much. I gripped the arms of my chair. I'm a good mother, you know. There's no way she loves Sammy as much as I do. I mean, she's more patient with him, and she spends more time playing with him, but that's because it's her job. She doesn't have to worry about getting dozens of other things done at the same time. I spend as much time with him as I can, every second that I'm not working. Margaret, Beverly leaned forward, a single crease running across her broad forehead. I know. Another unspoken line between us that neither of us needed to say. But does Sammy... Only the attachment test could say for sure, and I wasn't going to let it come to that. Well, well, Daniel said. I think the word irony could be used here, don't you? My stomach twisted, and I wished I'd made this call audio only. My ex-husband's smug, handsome face made me want to put my fist through the V-screen. Instead, I turned back to the kitchen counter so that my back was to him. I'd known he would gloat. I'd known I would have to endure it, so here I was, enduring it. Glad to hear you're capable of three-syllable words now, Daniel. Or not so much. He laughed. You were pretty eager for the attachment test during our divorce, weren't you? When you were so sure which of us would win. A breastfeeding mother versus a man who hadn't even bothered to take his paternity leave? No, it hadn't been much of a contest. I had been the one who could comfort Sammy when he woke up at night, the one he called for as soon as he could speak, the one he clung to when he was scared. Back then, the attachment test had benefited mothers. Besides, Daniel hadn't even wanted Sammy. He would just wanted to take him away from me. Sometimes it felt like that was all anyone wanted. I told you that if you wanted to raise him yourself, you were going to have to quit. I tuned him out, something that had grown more difficult now that I was no longer in practice. After his fourth round of reasons why Sammy was going to be messed up because of the way I was raising him, I decided he'd had enough time to get it out of his system. And if not, too bad. I've always made it easy for you to see Sammy, I said evenly, even when I don't legally have to. I did it because I thought it would be better for him. Do you think Steph will do the same? That silenced him. Not that he had ever taken advantage of my openness, but Daniel was always more motivated by what he didn't have than by what he did. You sound pretty sure she would win, he said finally. I'm not sure at all. Even as I said it, fear twisted through me, thick and sour. Sammy. 
but I don't want to take the chance. Sure you don't. That's why you're desperate enough to call me. Daniel stretched his arms above his head. What do you want me to do about it? I took a deep breath. Date her. He dropped his hands. What? Start a relationship with her, then dump her. If she sues for custody after that, it will look like a cheap attempt at revenge. Or at least confuse the issue enough that I can get the case thrown out before they order an attachment test. Or convince the agency that I wasn't a good test case after all. There was a moment of silence. Then Daniel said, I'm impressed. I didn't doubt it. The story was on the pop-up screen the next morning. Bioist blackmail. It was all about the crazy, neglectful mother who had asked her ex-husband to compromise her loving, selfless nanny because she couldn't accept being replaced in her son's affections. There were already 57 comments, but I stopped reading after the first three. Wouldn't it be simpler for her to just read him a few bedtime books? But I guess she didn't have the time. I wish I could say I was surprised, but I'm not. Anne from New Jersey. 43 people liked this. I'm not surprised either. She's a mom. She did what she had to do in order to keep her kid. I'd do the same. I know you'll all just label me bioist, but I don't care. It's true. Loving mom from Alabama. Three people liked this. I used to be a nanny, and trust me, this is typical of most of the moms I worked for. I felt sorry for their kids. I would have sued for custody myself if I didn't have five kids of my own. A nanny from USA. Twenty-six people liked this. There were no names in the article, which only meant the news service hadn't yet completed the verification process. I was sure the names, my name, Daniel's name, Steph's name, were encoded in, ready to pop up as soon as it was legal. My first thought, buried in a wave of shame, was, Thank God Sammy can't read. Daniel answered on the first buzz, already smirking. Why, hello, Margie. You, you, why? Do you want Steph to have our son? No, I want him. I couldn't think of anything to say. Luckily, it was a vid call, so he could see me gaping. Well, clearly you shouldn't have him. He ran a hand through his hair. I'm going to ask for a repeat of the parental attachment test. By law, that has to happen before your nanny gets tested. True, that law was one of the remnants of the old biological-based custody laws. It had been struck down in 38 states, but Ohio wasn't one of them. Yet. Daniel, I said as calmly as I could, not very. You can't honestly think you'll win... You've seen him three times this year. And we had fun each time, Daniel leaned back. I'm not the one who's been yelling at him and putting him in time aways and ignoring when he wants to play. Which of us do you think he loves more now? That's, that's not how it works. Well, he said smugly, I guess we'll find out. Our attachment test was recorded, so Daniel made sure to look his best. His best was very good a fact that made me hate him more. I hadn't bothered to get dressed up, beyond a maroon business robe and a smattering of hypno-cream on my face. And that was only because I was hoping I could make it to the office afterward. Today's trial didn't scare me at all. I wasn't worried about the result of this attachment test. And since they never televised the boring ones, where custody remained with the mother, no one would see what I looked like.
Sammy looked frightened as they fitted the brainwave recorders to his head, and my heart twisted. Nothing had ever made me hate Daniel more than the things he was willing to put Sammy through just to get to me. I wanted to hug my little boy and tell him it would be okay, but because this was an adversarial test, neither Daniel nor I was allowed to be with him. He kept saying, Mommy? as he cried, but Daniel's smug expression never even flickered. Arrogance makes smart people stupid. We walked into the testing room together, which was new. Back when we had been tested for our divorce, we had entered through separate doors on opposite sides of the room. The attachment measuring technology had, obviously, been refined over the past couple of years. But the indicators were still there, probably for dramatic effect. Two lines, one red and one blue, running up the back wall. There were cameras trained on the wall and on each of our faces. "'Mommy!' Sammy screamed and hurled himself across the room into my arms. I grabbed him to me and hugged him close, breathing in his soft, clean scent and whispering that it would be okay. After a moment, I looked over his shoulder. The red line had lit up all the way to the top. The blue one had barely budged. I smiled as I buried my face in my son's hair. "'I'm sorry, Sammy. I'm sorry we had to do this. But it's okay now. Mommy's here, and we're going home.' In a small voice that was still loud enough to be picked up by the mics, he said, Will Steph be there? I got the summons from Steph three days later. The attachment test was scheduled for less than two weeks away, which meant the case had been fast-tracked, which meant someone with power had arranged for it. I was staring at the summons, my throat so tight I couldn't breathe, when Steph walked into my living room. We looked at each other. There was nothing to say. Sammy was still asleep. I had to go to work, and we both knew the law. Until the attachment test was done, I couldn't keep her from taking care of Sammy. And afterward, she might be the one who could keep him from me. I knew what I had to do, walk out the door. It was the only thing I could do. But I could no more move than I could speak. In the bedroom, Sammy grunted in his sleep, and the blankets rustled. On most days, that would have been my cue to delay leaving for a few minutes, in case he woke up and I could kiss him goodbye before I left. His innocence made my heart hurt. I was supposed to protect him, and I didn't know if I could. "'Margaret,' Steph said, "'this doesn't have to get ugly.' My eyes stung. My heart shrank in on itself. "'Please,' I whispered, not caring how humiliating it was. "'Don't take him away from me.' Steph shook her head. It's not about you, Margaret. I'm late, I said, when I could breathe again. It took all my control to keep from slapping her as I walked past her out the door. My firm's detective agency was expensive and discreet. After telling the senior partner I had to drop the D.C. case, he didn't argue, so I knew he had read the news article. I called them. They were fast, too. Within two hours, I had a three-inch file on Steph sitting on my desk. For all the good it did me, she was, of course, completely clean. If the agency's goal was to make sure the non-custody clause was struck down, they wouldn't choose someone with the slightest flaw to sue for custody of my child. It had to be crystal clear who would be the better parent. Steph had even gone to law school for a year, then dropped out because she wasn't attracted to the lifestyle. I frowned over that for a moment. Something about it didn't make sense. Then I shook my head. It didn't just make sense, it was perfect. Such a contrast to me, the ambitious, career-driven, wants-to-have-it-all mom who wouldn't put her son first. I swore and slammed the file shut. 
Well, what had I expected? She had been chosen, just like me. I had kept my previous nanny for seven months. The one before that had quit on her own after a year. The agency must have known I would do it again, that Steph would have time to make Sammy love her, love her more than he loved me. Did he really? I thought of him as a baby, his wide blue eyes following me everywhere, blindingly trusting. I thought I had fulfilled that trust. When I had first gone back to work, everyone had assured me that hiring a nanny wasn't a failure on my part, that Sammy would be perfectly fine, and I had believed them. He was still so happy to see me when I came home at the end of the day. He knew who his mother was. Didn't he? As if in answer, my V-screen lit up. I recognized Daniel's light pattern and straightened eagerly. A shouting match would feel good right about now. But it wasn't Daniel. At least, not in person. He'd always been good at revenge. This time, he'd sent me a clip. From Goodbye Nanny. It was a ten-second clip. So fast, I didn't have time to turn it off. The little boy, wailing, bewildered pain on every inch of his innocent face. The scream, ripped from his throat. Nana! And the mother, cold and triumphant, not aware or not caring about how badly she was hurting her little boy. I sat at my desk, breathing hard. Then I flicked my finger at the screen and touched replay. Nana, don't go! I played it again. And again. Daniel wasn't quite as good as he thought he was. Every time I watched, I was struck anew by a streak of righteous happiness, almost pride. I'm a good mother. I am not like that. I will win this case. It wasn't until I was on my way home that I realized I could do better than that. When I walked in, Steph was on the floor doing a puzzle with Sammy. She didn't notice me right away, but Sammy did. He looked up, grinning so widely his whole face seemed to light. Mommy, look! I did the whole thing by myself! That's amazing, I said, clapping my hands together. Wow, Sammy, I'm so proud of you! Steph scrambled to her feet. I'll see you to... Actually, I said, why don't we talk? Sweetie, do you want to take the puzzle apart and do it again? Come tell me when it's done so I can see it. Steph trailed me warily to the kitchen. I pulled out a seat, sat, and said pleasantly, I didn't know you went to law school. She leaned back against the counter, knees bent as if she was ready to run. I did, a long time ago. I thought being a nanny was more suited to my personality. That would work for you, I said, if you wanted custody of Sammy. But I don't think you do. She glanced into the living room, where Sammy was tearing the puzzle apart with glee. What are you trying to say? I think you should know, I said, that I'm going to concede. Her eyes narrowed. What? I'm going to concede custody to you. I'll explain that I realize I was never cut out to be a mother, and that my son should be with the person who can love him best. And then I'll ask for generous visitation rights. I don't doubt I'll get them. I smiled. So, congratulations? Her mouth worked. After a moment, she said, Why? Because I won't let him be a pawn. Anger surged through me, and it was a moment before I recaptured my cool, clinical tone. I know why this case is important to you, to the agency, but I won't let you put my son through this just to prove your point. Margaret, 
She took a deep breath. I'm sorry. I don't want to take Sammy away from you. I know that. And I don't want to take him away from you, I added, which was a flat-out lie. But I knew she wouldn't call my bluff. Not now that I understood what this case was really about. I waited until she reached the door before adding sweetly, You'll always have a place here. Until the agency pulled her off to try again. She was too good a candidate not to be a part of their next attempt, especially the fact that she had gone to law school, and so no one could argue that she didn't understand the contract she had signed. The next mom probably wouldn't figure that out. I ate dinner with Sammy. Steph was a great cook. I would miss that. Let him watch an edu show while I cleaned up and answered some emails, then read him a book and got him into bed. I waited until I heard his breathing even out, then went to his room and stood there looking down at him for a while. He was sleeping with his butt sticking straight up in the air, his cheek mashed against his pillow, so sweet that I risked waking him up by leaning over and kissing his forehead. He muttered something, but he didn't wake up. Not wanting to push my luck, I tiptoed out of the room and shut the door firmly behind me. Then I settled on the couch and selected my saved version of Goodbye Nanny. This year, Mother's Day viewing hadn't counted. I hadn't enjoyed it. Tonight, I fully intended to appreciate every second. After all, it was the reason I had figured out what the agency was really after. There's a reason this movie is shown every Mother's Day. There was, but not to help the nannies. To help the mothers. This was why my friends and I were yearly riveted to this film, the one that made the case for our children being taken from us. It wasn't because of our deep belief in the rightness of attachment-based custody. My belief, I now knew, was barely skin deep. I doubted Kate's or Annette's, or most mothers, was that much deeper. No, we loved that documentary because we weren't that mother. For all the tiny guilts that piled upon us day after day, missed school events and unhealthy dinners, and not hearing our kids because we were sorting mail, we weren't as bad as that mother. We could tell ourselves we had nothing to worry about. But we still fired our nannies every three months. Which must make life difficult for the nannies. 99% of the time, the nannies lose. They didn't want the clause struck down. They wanted it upheld. That was why I had been chosen, because I wasn't that mother. Because Steph had been a law student, nobody could argue she didn't understand the non-custody clause. Because I was pretty decent as a mother, nobody could argue that upholding it was unnecessarily cruel. The court might, might have upheld the clause. And wouldn't that be better for everyone? Better luck next time, I said under my breath and I meant it. In the bedroom, Sammy let out a soft snore. I flicked on the movie and settled back to watch. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Leah Cypress. Leah, thank you so much for that. That's lovely. Honestly, lovely. Thank you. And Mert, what can I say? It's lovely to have you on the Starship over again. Big thank you to both of you. So, well, we're going to play an interview, like I say, I carried out with Lucius Shepard, 2010, and like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Lucius passed away, and total surprise to me, I knew he was bad, and, you know, but you just don't expect it, you know what I mean, he's gone, that's it, finished, you know, 
no more great work. And what great work there was. You know, we were lucky enough to play a few stories by Lucius. And I also remember as well, straight away, do you know what I mean? would just give you some work. Do you know what I mean? You didn't have to kind of, you know, it was just so kind. You know, when I first even got in touch with him, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, and straight the board came on board and you just felt like he was a friend. Do you know what I mean? He just would talk and, and it was lovely, you know what I mean? And he asked, and he always asked how you were, you know, how, how, how's it going with you? How, how's things that? And it was just a lovely guy. And I also remember once when... Lucius gives a story, I forget which one it was, it was about, it was a horror story and it was, or a kind of vampire story and it was going in an Ellen Datlow collection and, you know, Lucius said, oh, what would you think of that one? And I says, oh, great, great, bang, and I got it done and I narrated it next, and I think it was up the next week. You know, my keen is out, you know what I mean, to get Lucius Shepard's story. And, you know, within like kind of half a day, Lucius, Tony, the book hasn't even come out yet. You know, there's copyright and all sorts. And it was just like, so I don't know if anyone actually heard that story. We put it up for, like I say, it must have been, it was the one and only time I probably deleted a show where I thought, I need to kind of get that sorted out and put something else in. And I'm sure, well, it was probably 2011, maybe. It was, a, it was definitely, a, you know, we put some story in, and I can't remember which we replaced it, but, you know, and I was like, Lucius, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And he was lovely about it. He says, oh, just, you know, it's not just kind of Ellen Datlow, it's not, it's just like, you know, the, the big guns, you know, paying all that money, and we're kind of sneaking it out straight away. So, but this is an interview I carried out with Lucius, 2010, and it was lovely, like I said, you know, at the beginning, at the beginning of the show, we got away from the kind of the, the questions, you know, and I just we just eventually just chatted, and that was one of the times I first realised where how good it is to talk to someone in a kind of an interview scenario, but just talk to them, you know, naturally, you know, how's it going, what you're doing, what you're up to, and just chatting. Do you know what I mean? That's what I kind of like about interviews, and that was the first time where I realised that's what it could be like, you know, once you get someone like that. You know, obviously, you know, go back and have a listen to the kind of 15 questions. You know, it was just, all, you know, it was a bit stilted at the interview, and I could tell, you know what I mean? He wasn't really digging the questions. Yeah, because they were basically, you know, the, the questions every science fiction writer asks or gets asked, you know. But once all that was over and in the background, then we can just talk, you know what I mean? I guess he was interested in me, you know, I'm a northeast of England on the, on the coast there, and, you know, you don't often kind of come into contact with someone. <laughs> Someone like me every now and again, for, you know, in America kind of thing. So we just kind of chatted on. And this is, you know, the, the interview we, we did. So I'm joined by the author of Carlos Manson Lives, Lucius Shepard. Lucius, nice of you to come on board. Thanks, hi. Lucius, now I'm really quite pleased, with, oh, not pleased with this story, chuffed that I've got this story. Can, tell us a little bit about it, if you can remember, because it was 2003, I think, when it came out. Well, it's just a, um, a little story I wrote um, from a woman's point of view, from a, from a rock and roll singer's point of view. I, you know, I've known a lot of women in rock and roll, and like, uh, so she was a kind of composite of the worst women I knew. And, uh, you know, she was just, uh, you know, she was a druggie, and like, uh, she had this weird encounter, which is the kind of thing that happens rock and roll all the time, strange sort of encounters, but sometimes they're sinister and sometimes they're just stupid. But, you know, yeah, that's about what it was, you know. But it was the first, I wrote a series of stories after that about the same character in different stages of her life. 
I was just looking on, I think it's the Internet Science Fiction database there, and there is like a number of stories in 2003. Is that when they all kind of came round, this particular batch of stories? Um, when I wrote them, when the, yes. those particular few stories? Um, no, I mean, I, I've written them, you know, intermittently over the years, you know. I mean, she's just a character I like. You know, I, I like usually unsympathetic, unpleasant characters. <laughs> Why is that? I think they're more interesting. You know, I mean, I think if you act and ask an actor whether you ought to play a good guy or a villain, I think he will go a villain 90% of the time. I mean, you know, like uh, villains are usually usually have more they have more easy ways to get into the character, you know, for a writer, you know, than uh, than than a good guy does, you know, or, or a good woman. You know, it's like uh, they're. Um, it just like seems seem I don't know maybe maybe that's not true I mean maybe it's just me you know like uh, you know but anyway for me they're they're much easier to relate to you know a bit more I would, even for me mind as well a bit more exciting do you know what I mean yeah. just a, do you prefer the short story to the novel because I'm looking at you again on that site in that science fiction database and you've got a, a fair number of short stories are them do them keep you going when you're when you're in between working on novels or do you prefer well the you know I, you know basically basically uh, i mean you know i'm haven't been much of a novelist but uh that may change in the next few years but like uh i mean basically i just i just have so many ideas and uh, you know that, that develop out to usually only novella length you know and uh they they don't seem to warrant expansion, and uh, so I just leave them as novellas and don't try and expand them. But I, I mean, it's a natural it's a natural length for a writer. I think a novella it's just uh, it's good enough to it's long enough to uh, to where you can uh, interject enough characterization, plot, you know, to, to make things run. Like you know, usually get a pretty good deep story out of it. But uh, I just I'm just not you know I'm just sort of I like I like novellas and long novelettes more than more than any more than writing novels. I mean, I mean, you know what? I mean, novels, you know, are usually you know I, most novels I read could be compressed. You know, I feel and like uh, I mean they're usually extended and drawn out things, and I don't know. I just lose interest in a lot of them. You know, so I, I was know. just going to ask that. Are you a bit of a se- severe critic? With other, you know, when you're reading it, you're thinking, oh, you're waffling here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I sort of can see, you know, where writers, you know, or some writers anyway, uh, you know, they start trying to poof things out, you know, like, <laughs> you know, and like, uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I, I don't do that. I try and get it done. I mean, most, a lot of people over here say I, I write long, but, you know, I mean, I try and write more, my, my, my definition of it is I write more precisely, but I don't, I mean, I tell, I tell simple stories and I, I just, I think most novels are really basically simple stories that are really, uh, you know, overcomplicated and, and, you know, like puffed up and, you know, I mean, you could tell them in less words, you know, like, but, you know, again, that's just me. I, I don't know if that's true or not. You know, I just, it's just a feeling I have. I don't, I don't like to read many novels. I don't finish many novels. And, uh, you know, I finish a lot of short stories and novellas. So what, um, just out of curiosity, what are you reading now? I'm not really not reading too much right now because I'm in, I'm in a really, you know, sort of pressured deadline work mode, you know, and like, uh, <laughs> but I just read Karen Warren's short story collection because I wrote the intro to it, and that was very good, Dead Sea Fruit, it's called, and like, I, uh, 
Um, I just read a book called The Ask by uh, Stephen Lipscheidt. You know, I think his name is. It's really good. It's like kind of a odd, you know, novel about a, a man who's like uh, he sort of has bad has bad attitude toward the United States, which I kind of liked. You know, so. <laughs> Do you, you know when you've got these deadlines on and things like that, do you not read because you don't want to be kind of influenced by, or not influenced, maybe, you know, s- somehow the, their words kind of seep into your words, or is it just purely time thing? You need to kind of concentrate on getting yours. Well, right finished? now it's a time thing. It's a time thing right now. I mean, you know, I, I don't mind reading. I, I love to steal from other writers. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, you know, one of my favourite things, but like... Uh, but you know the um, right now it's just a matter of like if you're working a 12-hour day writing you don't want to just get sit back and start a book, you know you, you just assume maybe watch a movie or something like that, you know, or you know go out and take a walk or. And you don't want you, you know, don't want some uh, fool from the other side of the pond phone you right in the middle of it. Well, no, that's fine, you know. But I mean, you know, it's just like you know. There's a lot of there's a lot of other things rather I'd rather do right now, especially when I'm putting in such long hours, you know, like you know, can you than, than read? Can you tell us a, a little bit about what you you're working on now, or? Well, what I'm working on at the moment is a, a novella, you know, which is a, a, dra- a Dragon Grill novella. Well, it will be the final one in, in this series of stories I wrote about this. Uh, immense 7,000 foot dragon, you know, who just doesn't do anything. He moves, he doesn't move, he's paralyzed, you know, and like, uh, but he sort of dominates the landscape because people think he's a god, you know, sort of, you know, and like he never, never says he is and certainly never can, never can move or give any evidence that he is. But, uh, when I first started writing the stories in the uh, 1980s, I sort of was thinking about the Reagan administration, you know, you know, that was my model for the dragon, you know, like, uh, you know, Anyway, like, uh, you know, so I'm writing one of those, but I've, I've also working on a novel, and uh, that's like uh, called The End of Life as We Know It, which is kind of a, kind of a genre novel, but it's sort of, basically it's a slip, slip, slipstream novel, more or less, you know, kind of right on the border there. Have you have you got a deal with that one, that, this novel coming out, have you? Has got a publisher, or? Yeah. That's nice. But, I mean, you know, it's like... Uh, I mean, I, I can place pretty much what I write right now. I mean, you know, like, uh, but, uh, you know, I like to write the novels before, but I have a couple of editors who, who's, who've, who's expressed interest and, in, you know, another, another publisher has just now come through and expressed interest. So I'm not too worried about placing it. You know, I don't have, I don't have a solid, you know, I didn't, I, I, li- I don't like writing on spec because, you know, I just, I don't know how long it's going to take me to finish this book, and I don't want anybody telling me how long it how long it'll take me. So you know, uh, I'm just I'm just interested. Yeah, are you like a, a plotter with your work? You know, like a careful plotter, get it all planned out first, or no, no just no. sit down and ah, ah, there's a f- loads to be quite honest. Say, oh, I just start writing and I see where it ends. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, you know, I mean, I sometimes you know, like. Um, I mean, I sort of have an idea where it's going, you know, like, I mean, but I never, I mean, I don't sit down there and, you know, put scene one, scene two, scene three, you know, down, you know, I just, you know, after, I mean, I I, I might have an idea of the middle, and I mean, of the, of the beginning and, and the end, but, you know, I, I certainly don't know anything about the middle, you know, and like, uh, so that's, and usually by the time I've written the middle, the ending's changed anyway, so, you know. So, 
just really ending then, Lucius. How how long you got more left to write today? How many more hours are you going to give yourself? <laughs> I'm going to take a break after we get off the phone, eat lunch, and uh, you know I'll probably get back to it about two two thirty and like uh, two thirty maybe, and like uh, they'll probably go to seven or eight o'clock. You know I've been working since six, <laughs> so you know it's like. Uh, but I'm I'm just you know I'm working on two things now. I'm working I'm working on. The, the uh, novella and the novel, both. You know, I, you, you, yeah. I mean, you get stale if you keep if you work on one thing for that long. So I switch off. You know, and so you know, it's, so I hope. I was going to say, it's, it's funny because when I emailed you this, like today for my, like, say, morning time, and you really emailed back pretty much soon, straight away, I was thinking, you're up pretty early. So are you, are you up six o'clock in the morning writing? Yeah. Well, I actually, last, that was, uh, I got up and to go to the bathroom. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, uh, the, uh, you know, I, yeah, I was up at six o'clock and pretty much working by 6.20, you know, like, and, uh, after I, you know, I like to start working before I wake up, so I won't know how I'm losing a day, you know, to work. You know, like you know, I mean, if I'm, if I don't think about what a nice day it is outside and anything like that, you know, then I'm okay, you know. But if I start thinking about, you know, gee, it looks like, you know, I was going to just say that you're easily distracted. You know, if say emails are, are popping in, or just switch all that off when you're writing. Um, pretty much, I, I pretty much. Uh, kind of not got an internet presence at the moment. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm on Facebook and I've got a blog and all that crap and like, uh, <laughs> I, I answer emails, but I mean, but, but, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I've left the blog and the Facebook alone. I'm just, you know, you answer the occasional email, you know, but, um, <clears throat> you know, for, I mean, I mean, from you and from, you know, business, business things, you know, like I'll, I'll do that, but nobody else. You know, it's just uh, unless like somebody calls and say they need a kidney or something, you know, like. Well, Lucius, you're a star. Thank you so much for taking this call. For sure, no problem. Keep in touch, but that was lovely. I'll um, I'll, I'll tack that on the front of the story, and yeah, uh, okay. it'll be great. It's and I, actually I was going to mention the, the the Russian, you know, the Russian one. Yeah, but I'll, I'll hopefully I'll, I'll phone you back for that one because I, I I sent it off and it was a great narration, but it was from a from a girl who narrated a female who narrated it, but she wasn't yeah. comfortable with it being, you know, like a kind of a male point of view. She says so. I put a, a shout out on Twitter and I got a great like actor. a male point of view. What? <laughs> that seems sort of odd. Well, you know, was she? I mean, she was worried about the male point of view. That's what she says, you know what I mean? And like I say, I, I really um, enjoyed the, the narration, but I've, uh, I've got... I've got because that even says, well, I like it, do you know what I mean? But she was a little bit kind of hesitant still, so it's in the hands of another narrator, so... Hmm. It was sort of about a, a woman who was, you know, like manipulating men and, and doing a very good job of it. I'm not sure why she would object. I don't know. You know? I, don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll try and, um, I'll put a, I'll try and upload it and put a link to, so you can, if you want to do, to have a listen to it, you know what I mean? But, yeah. You know, and if, if you come back and say, that's fantastic, Tony, <laughs> we'll see if we can persuade her. But anyway, it's actually, it's a, it's a guy that's doing it now, and I haven't I haven't heard back from him for a couple of weeks anyway. So uh, maybe the story really hurt her. 
know. Well, no, she's she's actually she's read some pretty hard hard hitting ones as well before. Yeah. So oh, yeah. we'll see, we'll see. Yeah, but it, well, uh, that's okay. But you, you got another guy, huh? Yes, and I tell you what, um, it'll well, it'll be a couple of months. Um, volume two comes out. You know, me me book, and I couldn't I couldn't figure off the top of the head what the story was you sent us. I'll send yeah. you I'll send you a copy of that when that comes out as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I got some more short stories out. I've been writing some that are oh yes, please, or, be... or, or shorter anyway. Like I mean, they're not. I got a really good vampire story, but I mean, I don't know if I can print that or have that iPod yet because, like, I don't know if an editor would like that. But I'll ask her. But uh, it's a pretty good vampire story. Well, is that is that the one that's in um, Ellen, Ellen Datlow's? Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I, I might get, try and get her to give us to get her on the phone like this and do a little interview, and then that would, if I got that one narrated, that would coincide. Yeah, well, that's yeah, a bit of like publicity. Well, I'll, for that. I'll send that along to you. You know, it's like a, I'm pretty pleased with it. You know, like, uh, but anyway, you know, like, um, what? Um, just I've got some other stuff. Hmm? Go ahead. What? No, I'm just going to say what um, point of view it is. That's what I'm always keen to find out straight away. So I, I kind of picture you. It's a young girl, right. 15 years old. Yeah, right. You know, like, uh, but I mean, it's a, it's a YA story, but I mean, it's but it's not really a YA story. I mean, because it's you know awful of cuss words and stuff and like uh, you know and, and pretty much adult attitudes you know i mean she's she's 15 going on 40 you know like you know this girl is like a, kind of a slutty girl you know a high you know high school slut you know kind of and like kind of kind of wise to the ways of the world you know so you know she's uh you know i mean you know i, I kind of dug that story i mean i kind of liked it oh well so, um, you know. i would love to play it to be quite honest if that's all right and yeah, I'll, well, I'll send you send you a couple in a, in a in a few days when I get get a, get a minute to like sift through them all the yes, stuff that I've got. Yes. Yeah, like well, yeah, that would that would be great. I mean, I'm away for a, like a, a couple of weeks now um, from Sunday, anyways, on holiday, so I'm kind of out. But just please send it over, and I'll I'll answer you or whenever you can send it over, and I'll drop you an email of thanks when I get it when I pick them up. Okay, but that would be lovely. Yeah, no problem. I'll do that. You know, so anyway, how are you doing? Everything going good? Yes. Well, did I tell you that? Because um, I was going for a new job, and I was right. I, I don't know. I was all kind of concentrating on this new job, and I haven't been able to like, do the interviews and stuff. And I don't know if I mentioned that to you as well. But I got this new job, but I haven't started it yet. So we'll just have to wait and see when when I start it, because someone's got to like do my job. It's it's a job within the company still. So I'm getting on. I'm getting on Skype. By the way. Right. Well, that's that's it's actually handy. It's it's um, I can call you on Skype. You know, and do interviews like that on Skype. But it's just the, the same on. Um, I found it's easier just doing it on telephone as it's well. It's just cheaper. It's just cheaper on. It's cheaper on Skype, though, right? Yes. I mean, it's it's God. This this phone call is probably going to cost. I don't know how much it is over there, but four pence, ten pence. You know, probably like. Yeah. Half a dollar or something like that. It's it's it's. Oh, that's not bad. No, it's because I'm going through Skype. I'm calling you through Skype on your mobile. Oh. You know, on your like house line. So yep. every six months, I'll put in probably ten dollars into my Skype account, and I can phone. You know, I phone them all the bloody. Because not many writers have got Skype, you know, especially the old timers. And I'm not counting you in the old timers here. I'm oh, counting. you might as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I, I'm having to get it because I'm. Um, I'm going to be making a lot of phone calls starting in uh, October or November. Well, November I'm going to be in Europe, but like uh, 
the end of this year sometime, like I have to make, start making a whole lot of calls back and forth between Europe and like about a film project and like, you know, so it's going right. to be... Uh, oh, that would be... Is that um, you, one of your stories getting picked up? Oh, oh, no, I mean, you know, that's... Well, there's that too, but this is this is on a, it's just an independent screenplay project, you know, I have going, you know, and so it's like... Uh, we're going to have to be talking every day, and so I figured, you know, better better to get Skype cheaper that way, you know. Well, you can get them, you get the Skype now on your mobile phone. Do you know what I mean as well? So yeah, you can do it straight from your mobile phone to whoever's got it on. Yeah, I, I, my my problem is, you know, like I I I don't have a regular mobile phone. I use it. I only use a mobile phone like uh, when I have a journalism assignment. You know, then I just buy a cheap one, and you know. You know, and then throw it away. You know, pretty much. You know, I mean, you know, it's 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 so cheap. I just lose the phone or something. You know, I'm like, uh, but you know, um, I may have to get a mobile phone because you know. Well, actually, mate, if you if you're just like um, sitting on a laptop or carrying a laptop around with you, do you know what I mean? You can right. you can speak to anybody anybody in the world. You know, via Skype. Yeah, no, it's, I'm gonna. I think that's good. And like. Uh, but I may have to get a mobile phone too. I mean, you know, I'm, I've been fighting the fighting the idea for ten years, and like, uh, <laughs> you know, like just because uh, you know, it's you know, I, don't, I don't I don't like people calling me when I'm you know like uh, uh, traveling around or you know you know going driving somewhere or something like that. I really don't. You know, I just don't. It's, I feel I figure it's an invasion of privacy. You know, so for me, you know, it is anyway. I mean, I don't like you know. I just don't like communicating with people, you know, like, you know, I guess, you know. but no, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's just annoying, you know, like, and, uh, when it starts raining all the time. And so I, I've just been, just been using them for, for journalism assignments when, when, when I'm dealing with people like actors and, and, uh, athletes who do nothing but text, you know, they, they won't communicate any other way, you know. But text. Oh, so, you know. it's, it's a fa- I mean, just um, me daughter. Do you know what I mean? Like fourteen-year-old daughter. It's just bizarre how they just constantly text, and they can write in you know over here so quickly on a phone, like a text. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah. just phone, you know, and just just say, you know. But no, it's 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 all text in in the UK. That's like how yeah. a lot of no, the- it's the same way in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially with teenagers, you know. But 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 I mean. You know, a lot of what I, I do a lot of interviews when I do journalism. It's usually either in the in the area of, of acting or or, or uh, sports. You know, I, did, I just did a piece on a mixed martial arts fighter. You know, and like, um, <laughs> and, you know, he, he just won't communicate with anybody. He just with his, except with his thumbs. You know, that's the only way he'll do it. You know, so it's you know you got to do it too. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm not very fast. I have to look at the numbers and go book. Oh, I know that's exactly. It's exactly with me. Do you know what I mean? I've got one of these kind of fancy iPhones, but it takes me flicking ages to send. You know what I mean? It's quicker. Just a phone. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, for me too. But I mean, I haven't got magic thumbs like a fourteen-year-old. So you know, you know, they've got it down pat there. You know. Man, I tell you what, I've um, and I noticed with the. You know, I wouldn't take my phone abroad, you know, because it's one of them internet phones. Apparently, you get hit with, you'd be careful with that, like loads of charges, you know, if you go, oh, yeah. go over there. Because I was speaking to, I don't know if you know, Cheryl Morgan. She's some, like, a, a fan writer, a science fiction fan writer. She just, whichever country she goes to, she just buys one of yours, like, say, comes to the US, she just buys a cheapy US throwaway phone and uses that, you know, and puts, like, yeah. £20 on. 
Because if you're taking your own phone over, you get hit for so many charges. I didn't know that, huh? Uh, well, that's probably what I'll do, too. You know, like, well, when I have, when I'm in Europe, this, this, uh... it's just as quick to buy. A, apparently, what they do is just, just sell them at the airports. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just buy, yeah. buy a cheap one at the airport and use that instead of using yeah. your own. Because you just get yeah. hit with loads of bills. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm probably going to have to do that this fall because I'm going to to Paris, to Nantes, to... Uh... Oh, yeah. did you... Is, is, is Nantes the, um, for the convention? Yeah. Oh, right, because I was there. They invited me. It was great, mind you, that you got loads, like, free... Oh, yeah, I've been there three times. Right. You know, like, yeah, so it's, it's an old home week. i got to go to Paris for some signings in Krakow and uh, Warsaw and Geneva, so, you know, like... Uh, you know, busy, busy, you know. It's funny, I would love to go to, the, 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 it's funny how I, I fancy going to Europe more than the US, you know, the US just seems far too far away, you know, with like a couple of conventions in somewhere like Finland or somewhere like that would be cool, I think. Well, the Finland, Finland the, the big convention over there is supposed to be great, I've never been there, but like, uh, but yeah, no, I agree, I mean, I'd rather go to Europe than the States, the States is, you know. I don't know. I don't like it here. You know? But anyway, you know, like, you know, well, listen, I, I'm not a big fan. You know? you know, Lucy, if you ever come over to the UK, you know what I mean. Well, hopefully, you try and get up for a get the meet up and have a drink in that. Oh, no, for uh, sure. That'd be, I mean, I'm, yeah, I, I'm gonna be over there some point next year. I think I'm gonna. I was thinking of coming for uh, Easter Con. You know, is that a big convention there? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. You know, like, you know, I was thinking of coming in there for you know. I don't know if you go to those or not. But Actually, you know. I, don't, I don't. Do you know what I mean? It's, I've only, I don't really go to the conventions. you know what I mean? It's, um, I went to that, that French one, which was... Actually, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Do you know what I mean? But I don't... Um, oh, that's good, yeah, yeah. I mean, Were who, you there? I was, it was probably two years ago now. Oh, yeah. William Gibson was the, the kind of the, the, the guest of honour there. You, sh- you should have been there, like, you know, I think about... Four years ago, before it changed. Yes, you know? I've heard. Yeah. I've heard it was supposed to be really good. I mean, you know, they took care. If you were a guest there, man, they just laid it on, and it was really amazing. You know, like I mean, but I've heard they changed a little bit since uh, since Patrick suffering it. You know, Patrick Geiger. I don't know if you met him or not. I, I don't. I, I might have. I might, yes, I think I actually did. To be quite, I think I was like having a, a drink with them all one night. Yeah. Was, but the. You know, I was enjoying myself because you got all these kind of free tickets. But when they were saying, "Oh, you should have been here four years yeah. ago," when it was just like total. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was really awesome. Then you know, I, I went twice when it was like that. It was really really good. You know, like, uh, but you know, the economy got it down. I guess you know. So, but you know, I mean, it's a big deal there, man. It's like you know, I mean, seriously, big deal. The 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 mayor of Nantes comes out for it and you know does his thing. You know. And, I mean, it's like uh, well, hopefully, hopefully, yeah. if um, if if Starship Sofa wins, did you know we're up for a Hugo Award? Hmm? Did you know I was up I, for? I was up. You for, are? Oh yeah, that's yeah, cool. Yes, yeah. uh, best um, what's it? Best fanzine. I'm up for a Hugo. Oh. So if if I win that, hopefully, so <laughs> I might get some more invites. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Yeah, that'd be good. You know, like uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I mean, it's. You know, you, 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 the European conventions, you know, I mean, and, and I'll tell you what, what, what I like is, like, because I write film reviews, you know, like, uh, I, I got invited to film festivals in Europe, you know, like about three or four of those, and that's really awesome. And they put you up in five-star hotels, and, you know, they give you everything, man. It's like, you know, you get a gift bag full of junk, you know. 
For, for, for writing the film reviews you get put up for? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, they, they put me on the jury of film festivals, you know, right. like, you know, you know, and like, uh, and in that, you know, and so I, I was on the jury, uh, last time I was over, I was on the jury of the, uh, the one in Locarno and the one in, uh, one in, in, uh, Neuchâtel and like, uh, you know, so that was really cool. Cause I mean, to put me up in a hotel, was just like, you know, I mean, God could have done well there. You know I mean? It was like, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, uh, it was amazing, man. You know, like, you know, they give you, they give you a gift bag. that's all full of shit. Like, you know, cell phones and little mini computers and stuff. You do it. Oh, never. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's big stuff, man. Like, uh, I mean, perfume, which really didn't do me much good, but like, you know, I found a place for it. But, you know, it's like, uh, you know, really good stuff. And like, uh, you know, they treat you really good, treat you like a star and all that stuff, you know. And all you have to do is watch movies, you know. Hey, you know, <laughs> you know like, I could get along with that kind of shit, you know. Like, I tell you, I haven't um, read, I don't know, I don't know if read by, I don't know if you wrote one yet. Have you seen Inception? Yeah. Go on and tell us what you think of it then. Did, did you like it or not? No, I didn't really like it. Oh, well. man, I thought it was fantastic. I, mean, I, thought it was, I thought it was a pretty pedestrian summer movie. I mean, it was like a, <clears throat> all the beginning was like, you know, just dazzling. It was psychobabble. It didn't mean anything. And then, you know, everybody's going like, oh, it's so difficult to figure out. You'll have to see it several times. And what's to figure out? I mean, it's nothing. And then, you know, the action scenes in the end were... There was one good one with the um, the shifting gravity fight, you know. Yes. Had, you know, that was excellent. But the I mean, other stuff looked like, you know, James Bond Nintendo game, you know, like, and, and you know, I, did, I just thought the uh, the whole idea of turning the subconscious into a video game was just stupid, man. I mean, it was like, you know, just like every other movie becomes a video game. And like, you know, and then, you know, there's a lot of things I had problems with, like the fact that the characters didn't have any character. I mean, you know, I mean, what was it? What was the point of having Ellen Page there? I mean, she just, you know, all she was is a sounding board for um, for DiCaprio, and DiCaprio is like uh, all, all he does anymore is is like frown and look unshaven. And like, I, I just, I just didn't think it was a very good movie. You know, I mean, I mean, there are a lot of really dumb things in it. Like, you know, when the guy, you know, they're saying, yeah, it's, gee, I mean, you know, like um, it's so difficult to achieve Inception. And like we have to go in so deep, and, and the subjects keep waking up. And, he, and the guy says, "Well, I've found the solution for that." And they say, "What?" And they say, "He says a more powerful sedative." And I, you know, everybody goes, "Wow, genius!" I mean, you know, I just, you know, didn't, I didn't quite get that. You know? <laughs> anyway, I, I thought it was kind of um, kind of average. You know, like I mean, it was just like. In another summer movie, you know. Did you walk out thinking it was average, you know, straight away, or did you, did you have to go and... No, I, I, I mean, it was the kind of movie that almost left my head completely by the time I hit the parking lot. Really? Oh, God, yeah. I, so yeah, um, I don't know what, maybe I'm not watching the right, but I came out thinking, yes, that was for me, that, that would do... You, know I mean? you liked it. Oh, I, I certainly. Did. I, I don't know if I'm getting like wrapped up in the music score as well because I've got the, the I, I, I got the download of the music score, but it, yeah. I think it just all came together. Do you know what I mean? And <laughs> no, I, you know, it's like you know, everybody's got a different idea, but like I, I mean, I just thought it was like banal. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, it's just an excuse for another fucking video game. You know, like I mean, how many of those do you want to see in your life? I mean, you know, it's like. Uh, 
I mean, and, I mean, it was just like a video game. I mean, you had all the levels and all that shit, and like, I mean, it was just you know. So I mean, d- some the, the dreams, like you know, the dreams seemed too corporate and tame. They, they were the, the, I mean, I mean, Nolan's idea of, of the subconscious, I mean, wasn't unruly enough. I mean, it's like, uh, I mean, without, you know, I mean, you know, like, I, I mean, I much preferred, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, because like, I mean, the idea of dreams, like, is terrifying and, and like surprising and amazing and surreal. I mean, you know, that was that was handled much better. I mean, this was a dream. I mean, the guy must have been a boring sod. You know, his <laughs> inside of his head must have been like the inside of a, a fucking bubble gum machine because, I mean, you know, it just, it just didn't seem that interesting. And I know that's not the way things are. It's funny, know. you know, because I, I like as well DiCaprio. I think him and, I don't know, um, see Wahlberg and Matt Damon, they're, they're the actors I kind of really like now. And I, yeah. You know, the, was it the one DiCaprio was in, Departed? Did you not like, did you like that by any chance? Or? Well, I like the original movie, which was called Infernal Affairs, which was a Chinese movie, uh, a Hong Kong movie, which was great. And I thought, I thought the remake was disastrous. <laughs> yeah, like, well, we could, like, I could throw every film I'm sure Let, let's try one more I'll try one more because I've just been to see with the family Toy Story 3 have you seen that yet? Oh, I haven't, I haven't seen that no you know, it's, I'd probably like that a lot better you know than the other two I mean The Departed was like you know actually laugh out loud funny to me I mean I just you know because the uh, the original movie The Infernal Affairs was so great it was just such a unique action film you know, and and detect and sort of mystery who done it film and why are not who done it but like, you know who's going to do it you know, film or something like that. You know, it was like, uh, but but by the time Scorsese got done with it, it was like you know just this average kind of, you know, like um, hood gangster film. I mean, I just didn't feel feel much. You know. So, did, did- I, I'm, did it follow yeah. the same? Did it follow the same plot or not? Because I haven't. I'm... Well, it changed it a little bit. You know, I mean, it, it was like some stuff left out. You know, and I mean, they always leave some stuff out. You know, and like uh, usually it's good, good stuff. And like, uh, I just don't like remakes. I mean, you know, I mean, they're always like. Uh, I mean, like right now, they're just really about to release this remake of Let the Right One In. Which is that vampire movie? Yeah. Did you see that? I haven't, no, but I, I've I've heard about it. Well, it's it's great. It's fantastic. I mean, but you know, you can tell looking at the preview that this they're just going to ruin it. They're just going to you know take all the nuance and subtlety out of it and just make a a horror picture out of it. And it was it was a horror. It was a horror picture, but it was a lot more than that. You know, in the original Swedish version or Norwegian version. It was really complex and good, and, and the kids were just amazing. But I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I wouldn't want to see that. I wouldn't want to go see it. So remakes, generally, I don't like. I mean, you know, like uh, there are some that that are better than the original. There are very few, but but film re, re, foreign remakes, remakes of foreign films by the American film industry, as it's currently currently, uh, you know, as it currently is just aren't really that good. I mean, you know, they, they take all the, uh, the subtlety out of it and they, they over-explain everything. They, uh, I mean, they, they, they're playing to an audience over here that's dumbed down so badly that, you know, it's like, uh, they, they feel like it's necessary to explain everything three or four times, you know, and shit. And not necessarily in Departed, but, you know, in any kind of 
science fiction film. Or do, do you like think that. Inception was over explained then for for your personal tastes? No, I mean, you know, I mean, it was just bullshit. You know, I mean, I, I, no, I mean, I listened. I mean, I, I listened carefully to him, him going through all that crap in the beginning, and it was like, and then the whole thing hinges on having like the whole the machine, which is like a, a sort of a Game Boy, you know, like you know, with uh, with five things leading into it. I mean, you know, I mean, that was really dumb. Man. Like, I mean, I thought they they, they made they mad, had massive missed opportunities. Like the the really interesting thing about the whole process of, you know, inception or, or anything like anything they were doing was like the dream was dream, the dream design, you know, on how you translated these architectural drawings into actual structures in a dream, you know? And now if they, if they wanted to explain that, that would have been really cool. And if they wanted to show the stresses that put on the uh, designer, which DiCaprio probably had, as I, I had, obviously suffered, you know, I mean, that would have been interesting. In fact, I thought they should have made him the designer of the dream, you know, because he, he said, oh, I can't do it because because <clears throat> Malky's popping up and, and then, you know, she pops up anyway. <laughs> like, you know, so they didn't really need Ellen Page. I mean, she was just an extraneous character. I oh, mean, I never you know, guess you're right. I never thought about that. She still popped up anyways. No, I mean, she's just, she's just, it's ridiculous. Her her presence there was not required. I mean, she was just she was there, you know, just for some, you know, to have a girl, <laughs> like you know, and like, uh, I mean, it was like, uh, you know, I mean, just there's so many things in that movie that just didn't make sense. I mean, you know, and the psychobabble part, you know, was like, I mean, if you listen to it, it was just like, well, you, you know, we have a slogan over here, in, uh, saying over here in the states, if you can't persuade them with logic, dazzle them with bullshit. <laughs> And that's sort of what it was like, you know. <laughs> like, uh, and so they just, you know, gabble, gabble, gabble all this stuff, and like. Uh, but the real fascinating thing to me was the dream design. I mean, they should have, you know, I, I wanted to see, you know, I mean, if Mal had pro, uh, if Do, if Don, Dom had problems with with that, I mean, it would have been a lot cooler to have him design the dream because, he, you know, he and if Mal was going to pop up anyway. I mean, who better than to, to deal with her than some guy who knows her, you know, and like, you know, if he's trying to keep her out or anything like that. Or, I mean, it just would, it's, that was like, you know, the process of dream design is like the process of all art, you know, like film and, and writing and everything. You, you're trying to control a person's head and make them see something, make them feel something that they ordinarily wouldn't feel. And like you know, that would have been an interesting level to put on, and might might have given DiCaprio would have expanded and made more complex this character, which was very minimally sketched. You know, so you know, I don't know. I, I just had a lot of problems. You know. I could talk to you all night, <laughs> Lucius. Can I, I? I mean, this me MP3 recorder still recording there now. Do you want us? To, can I put the whole what we've just been talking about, or do you want us to? Um, oh, you can put it up, yeah. It's it's yeah, great. It's just bloody talking, you know. I'll, hopefully, we'll, we'll do this again then, because it's um, it's nice to get your thoughts on. Because honestly, I I bloody love that um, Inception. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I was dazzled by the music and you know anything that's got slow motion in it. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it, the sound goes a bit kind of slow motion and sound. Yeah, bullet and that, time. Yeah, yeah bullet, <laughs> bullet time. I mean, you know, it's like. Well, that's the uh, John Woo thing, you know. Like, I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm really unhappy with Nolan. I think he's, 
he's made you know he made two pictures that were really interesting and he made a movie called Following which was a black and white movie he made in England which is only 70 minutes long it was quite good and then he made Memento you like because I like that one did you like that one Oh yeah, right. You know, I thought that was that was that was really interesting. And then after that, it's been all fucking downhill. I mean, you know, I mean, as far as I can see, I mean, you know, like uh, the Prestige was better, was all right. You know, I mean, although it, it, it made the made the characters a little. I don't know. I just I just really was in love with that book, and like uh, it made the characters so much more nasty than they were in the book. You know, like I didn't, I didn't appreciate that, but. And now he's on to the Batman movies. I mean, they're comparing him to Stanley fucking Kubrick. I mean, this is this is Inception is is Nolan's seventh film. Kubrick's seventh film was Lolita. You know, his eighth film was uh, you know uh, I think uh, 2001, and his ninth film was The Clockwork Orange. I mean, I don't think I don't think Nolan's even in the same class. And, you know, like, I mean, you know, he's made, and, you know, I mean, bat, all these bat flicks and, like, uh, and he made a bad remake called Insomnia, which is a remake of a of a, of a Danish picture, I think, or a Swedish picture, one, and, like, um, bad remake. And, like, uh, now he's made Inception, you know, like, uh, which, you know, I, I don't know, I just, I can't, can't understand all the reviews. I mean, all the reviews over here about... The ones that don't like it, you know, which, you know, I usually don't read, but I, I was just so, so incredulous that people were raving about this film, but I, I went and read them, and I said, so all the people who don't like it are people like the New Yorker, the New York Times, like, uh, you know, I mean, the Village Voice, people like that. I mean, it's like uh, pretty good reviewers, and all the people who do like it are like, you know, you know, entertainment tonight. I mean, this isn't knocking necessarily... I'm just saying, you know, for someone who sees a lot of film, you know, and for someone who who has to think about the films to in order to, you know, I have to I have to write two thousand words on these film reviews, and so I'm forced to think about them, and like, you know, I can't just sit there, you know, and like, go, you know, like, you know, I like, I mean, you know, I wish I could. I mean, I would be a happier man. <laughs> I would be a happier man if I could just sit there and go, you know, like OD on sugar and, and coke and. You know, do that, but like you know, I mean, you, you get in, you get in this head where you, you think about the films, and if they don't make sense, it pisses you off, you know. So I mean, you know, it's uh, yeah, you know, I mean, that's probably you know, not a good thing, you know, for for watching a lot of movies. It's probably why I watch most of the movies I see are foreign films that, that I like are foreign films that are films, you know, like. Uh, you know, films, I mean, English, French, you know, like, uh, I like, I love English gangster pictures. I mean, those are the great, great, great gangster pictures. But British, British gangster pictures, but uh, like the... Uh, like modern day gangster pictures or just gangster pictures in general? Oh, from... like, you know, like the sexy beast, you know, like, right, yes. rain, rain, you know, things like that. I mean, you know, that's not, you know, I don't like all of them, but I like a lot of them, you know, and like, uh, you know, I mean, it's... Um, do you not think those British ones have had the, the time as well? I'm just thinking, I don't know if, um, you know, the kind of the likes of the Snatch and the Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Richie, you know. No, 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 don't like him too much, you know. Like, I mean, I always feel like, you know, he's kind of, I don't know, I always feel like he's not a real guy. I mean, he's not really, you know, doing a gangster film. He's commenting on a gangster film more, you know. Like, I mean, he's making fun of them, you know, kind of. 
And like you know, I, I'm just, uh, I, I like I like my films, my gangster films, do not have much of a sense of humor except internal in the internal characters. I mean, you know, like to not be commentary. I like you know, I like you know, I mean, I watch a whole lot of British TV. You know, like I like you know, all these you know bloody fucking TV shows. Like I you know, like I have to buy over in the, or Amazon UK. Uh, <laughs> you know, and like uh, I, I just got through watching Ashes to Ashes, and I like that a lot. You know, I mean, oh, you, you know, but which which one did you have you seen all the series or just? Yep, the, yep. And you liked the, all all of them, did you? Yeah, I kind of liked the, the three. I, just, I liked it a lot better than uh, even the very very ending. Did you? Because I don't want to kind of give the ending. Well, you know, it was a lot like the ending of Lost. I was I was kind of happy with everybody goes into the bar that is heaven. Ending, you know, like, uh, you know, like, uh, but you know, I thought it was pretty good up until the end, you know. I'll tell you what, there and is like, good out over here at the minute. I don't, you probably will get it on a uh, torrent. Is Sherlock? Yeah, I, got, I just ordered that. Yes, oh, well, the, the first, I've just seen the second one, and the second one was, it was uh, all right, but the first one I thought was excellent, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I just, I just ordered that on, uh, I think, I, I think they're shipping it out to me around mid August. You know, so you know, from Amazon UK. I, I don't, I don't get things on torrent. I, I just cannot download. I'm just not able to. Ah, uh, yes, but, I was going. Uh, yes, I would be. Would take a... I'm just not, not functionally literate on a computer. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, yeah, no, I, you know, yeah, I got that. That sounded great. You know, and like, uh, you know, I, I mean, even stuff like Waking the Dead and like, you know, Spooks and stuff like that is just so much better than the stuff we have on TV over here. You know, like you know, so. And it's funny how we see to import a load of Americanist like TVs on the telly, and you obviously use Americans must import because I've I've heard a couple of times where people are getting all our British crime TV programs over there. You know, like you see on DVD and stuff like that. Yeah, no, I think it's good, man. You know, I mean, you know, it's like, um, I mean. I don't like all of them, you know. Like, you're not a you're not a fan of that Robson Green, are you? <laughs> yes. No, I don't like Robson Green. <laughs> nah, I didn't like that one. I didn't like. Uh, I don't know, they had the one. I can't remember the name of it now. Something in the wire, one. is it? Um... No, I didn't like that that much. Um, I like, you know, I mean. I tell you why I, like, I don't. I tell you why I don't like him. Is he because he lives like round this area in the northeast of England, and yet he's lost his. He's, he's, he puts on this kind of false accent now, as if he's like he's left his roots behind. You know what I mean? But every now and again, when he gets excited, I hear him talking, and he's he slips back into his normal self, and it's proper. We call like a Geordie accent. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah. He tries to lose it, as if he's embarrassed by the northeast of England. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I, I, you know, I had some fun, eerie times in the Northeast of England. I mean, I couldn't understand anybody. And like, you know, like, I, mean, I mean, I had one guy, you know, this is the coldest winter in English history back in the 60s. And this guy threw me out of his truck because he kept me, he picked me up to keep him awake. And I couldn't understand fuck all he was saying, you know, like, so, I mean, you know, I just, he didn't see, he, he go, whoa, 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 whoa. And I go, what? You know, like, can you repeat that? Like, he got so mad at me. It's a fact, mate, you know, because it's, maybe I do it sometimes, you know, I sometimes try and be careful because, you can we can talk fast and yeah. we get a you know when I first started the show we used to get loads of emails saying you know it took it takes you a couple of weeks three weeks to like, to pick up on the you know the the speed and the dialects so. or 
Oh yeah, well I had the you know that that's that series, the red little red riding red riding hood series that you had over there? Right. Right. I mean I couldn't understand that without the subtitles. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean it was I mean, if I worked at it, you know, but that took all the enjoyment out of it, you know. Like, I mean, you know, I was having to sit there and figure out what was being said. And so finally I lifted some subtitles off the internet and got it, you know, but like um what were you, what were you doing in the northeast of England then in the 60s? I was uh, hitchhiking down to uh, to London where I ended up with pneumonia and then I got well and went to Spain. I was like, had so little money. I was like, uh, I was trying to kill squirrels in a park in Malaga to eat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey. I mean, yeah, it was finally I ended up, uh, ended up in Tormolinos. Which at that point was a <laughs> hip town, you know, like, I mean, you know, and like, uh, so I started making these, uh, these sort of, uh, collages out of construction paper and lottery tickets and shit. And I was, I was, I was a hippie, you know, and I had all this long hair and shit. And like, I was wandering around selling these uh, lottery tickets, like to the people in the cafes who were like the Duke of Bedford and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> like, it was like, I mean, you know, all these chess set people, you know, and like, uh, but, uh, you know, they thought it was cute. It's, God knows why. <laughs> it's funny, you know, me, me dad, because in, in the northeast of England, we, we used to, me dad used to move around all the time. We're always, like, following him. Like, we had to, me mom had to move different houses. You know what I mean? We had loads, like, we stayed in pubs, we lived in pubs, like, restaurants, fish and chip shops. And there was once where we were living in this pub, we organised this, like, a, a charity hitchhike to Monte Carlo and back. It was the first one. Huh. And it was like all the regulars out of the pub, and all the regulars out of the pub were like alcoholics. And they just one one weekend apparently decided that for charity to hitchhike down to Monte Carlo, and they were on the news and everything. And here, some of them never got there. You know, they're all like drunk as skunks all over the kind of Europe. You know, they're just getting the back of a car and didn't get. This. My dad got there, but he says there was a few of them never got never got there. We ended up in Germany and all over the place. And it was sort of the, you know never yeah, never sorted out. That's funny. I was really young when I was doing it. I was like you know fifteen and like you know sixteen, seventeen, like. Uh, and I was, I, you know, I, I did shit that I'm surprised I survived, you know, like, I mean, it was like, you know, absolutely crazy, some of the stuff that happened, you know, like, you know, I was like, you know, but I ended up in Spain, and that was all right, you know, and I ended up teaching at this American school, I, I told the guy I was 22, and like, um, I was teaching English with a bunch of, all all these Brits, you know, like, who were like, you know, about half of them junkies, <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, that school was the worst school. Anybody who went to it never learned anything. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, for my my part, you know, I, I mean, I was teaching classes made up of Arabs, Italians, Germans. I couldn't speak any of that stuff. I could speak Spanish. But, you know, so I put a little picture on the board of a bird, and I go point at it and go, bird. <laughs> you know? You know? That was that was how I taught English. I mean, you know, like, and, and I also I'd do funny things for them in class. And I'd make them laugh, you know. But that was about it, you know. And, and I was fucking, you know, not I was not shooting dope. I mean, some of these guys would come in there, and go to sleep. I mean, like, <laughs> how, how long were you in Spain for then? Um, 
<clears throat> on and off, I was there for quite a while, two years. But I, I took out a lot of trips. I was over to over to North Africa a lot, and I was up to Copenhagen. I, I, we were running running uh, running uh, Keith into England, and this was like. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> like you know, I, I was, I, I, I mean, this is how disorganized we were. We had a Volvo, and we packed it with 50 kilograms of Keith, right, in the doorways, and we got, we somehow passed through customs, customs in England, but we had nowhere to sell it. I mean, we figured, like, you know, we just go, you know, in the corners, and you know, people would come running up to buy a kilo, you know, and so, you know, like, so we ended up. I mean, we had a whole lot of fucking weird trips, man. We ended up with these two guys in London named Roger and Arthur, Cockney guys, you know, and like uh, they would drive us around in a car all day looking for people to buy a kilo. And, you know, they were they were like Fagans. They had all these little tykes working for them, you know, and like you'd say, you, you, like, you know, one time I said, wow, that's a nice sport coat. And says, Arthur would go, you want it? <laughs> you know, I'd, say, I'd say, yeah, sure, you know, like, what the hell? And this little kid would run in and grab it, grab a sport coat, 42 long, you know, and like, <laughs> and so we were ending up, we had this hotel room full of merchandise, you know, electric typewriters and all this shit, you know, like, you know I mean, it was ridiculous, and like, and like, uh, we weren't making enough money, so we had to get, we had to get stern with Arthur and Roger and, you know, tell them what we really needed, you know, but it was like, you know, it was really, it was, I mean, it was like, you know, it was Keystone cops, you know, stuff. It was like, yeah, absolutely absurd. But, you know, I mean, for some reason the authorities never tumbled to it. So, you know, they, you know, let us go or something. I'm going to ask, this, really I'm gonna ask this last question here. Have you settled down then? <laughs> or there was still the, the young wild kid in you? Well, no, I mean, you know, I'm, you know, like 62 now, man, you know, like, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty like different than I was. I mean, but like, I still, you know, I'm going to Australia for six months next year. So, you know, I mean, who knows what the hell is out there. I mean, you know, like I'm, I'm still, it's, I, I always like traveling. I mean, you know, it's like, uh, traveling is like, you know, drug. Is it, is that, is that how, um, you think of it? Do you, do you love the traveling? Do you? Oh yeah, totally. And, you know, it really informs our work. And you know, like, uh, I mean, I, I, I like to travel. I mean, I like to go somewhere and just sit down for three months and just explore this one little place. I don't like to. I don't want to. I don't want to go to Australia and just you know see Australia in six months. I want to go to one or two places and get to know those places really well. You know, and like, uh, you know, spend about three months in each. You know, and so. Uh, have you got somewhere you know, to stay in Australia? Have you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, and like. Uh, at least in one of the places. And there's a chance I'll be working on a film over there, too. So, I mean, that'll, that'll be another thing. But, um, but yeah, you know, it's like, you know. Hey, what a lifestyle you've got. Well, kind of, yeah. I mean, but, I mean it's, not, it's not as glamorous or weird as it seems. I mean, but it just, it's just like. It's the freedom, it, though, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? I yeah, mean that's what it is. Yeah. yeah, it really is free. I really like that. And I just like being able to, you know. You know, just say, you know, hell, I'll get, I'll go somewhere this weekend and then stay gone for three months. You know, <laughs> like, you know, like, I, I dig that, you know, like, so. And that's the way I've always been, you know, I mean, you know, it's 
why I have no good relationships. <laughs> you <know? laughs> right. You're going but, away. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I'll be back. I'll be back a couple months, maybe. You know, like, well, yeah, well, bloody not. More <laughs> yeah. or less, that's, that's the story of my life. Yeah. Oh, but anyway, yeah, it's like uh, been been interesting. I've loved this. It's been really nice. Hopefully, we can, you know, phone you up again. We'll just chat on. That'd be lovely. Yeah. Oh. Oh, I just saw a guy get hit with a baseball in the head, and that's pretty bad. Oh, anyway. Nice. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's been really nice talking to you, Tony. And like, I'll, I'll send you that stuff. Okay? Right. That would be lovely. And look after yourself and take good care. Yeah. Okay, man. You Luc- too. Lucy's your star. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye bye. <laughs> There you go. Lucius, you are surely missed. Surely missed. So that is Starship Sovas 330. I hope you've enjoyed it. Let's like say Mother's Day special there. Adam, thank you so much for that, putting that together. What a great show. Thank you. And like I say, JJ Campanella. Excellent. And like I say, can we all just raise our glasses to Lucius Shepard? We've lost one of the kind of one of the good guys out there and just a fantastic writer. I hope you enjoyed that little interview. Repeat performance by myself and Lucius. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. ...compromising their honor and artistic judgment. Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.